You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. <laughs> Here's to both of you. May you pay your rent on the first. <sighs> will tell the anger of my heart or else my heart concealing it will break oh now you're not gonna play hard to get are you yep yes dear and how old are you well i just turned 25 last week oh i'm really sorry you're much too old for the part oh well dance well you ever hear of martha graham I can't take these. Come on, speculate. Here. Oh. Oh, you're my little girl, don't you? Call an ambulance. Quick. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Heather Drain. Hello, hello. And making their premiere appearance in the booth is Mr. Ashley West. Thanks very much. Very honored to be here. This week, we are looking at Chuck Vincent's 1981 film, Roommates, co-written by Vincent and Rick Marks. The film tells the tale of a trio of women trying to make their way in New York City. The film stars Samantha Fox as Billy, a former prostitute trying to make it in the straight world, Kelly Nichols as Sherry, a model from California with a drug problem, and Veronica Hart as Joan, an aspiring actress from the Midwest. The film has aspects of an adult movie, but moreover as a harrowing study of women, the expectations placed on them, and their own desires. So we're going to be getting into spoilers galore on this episode. I just want to warn folks, we're going to be talking about this, another film called The Best of Everything, and another film called Little Girls Lost. So if you haven't seen any of those films, turn off the podcast, go watch them, come on back, we will still be here. So Heather, when was the first time you saw Roommates, and what did you think? Fascinatingly, as much as I've studied like classic adult cinema, and of course, the minute you start reading about this era, Roommates is one of the big, kind of the big dogs of it. It's one of the big titles. 
Weirdly enough, though, I never actually sat down and got to watch all of it until a few weeks ago, prepping for this. And it's weird because I love Chuck Vincent because I always tend to go to like obscure titles anyways. Maybe that's why. Oh, my God. It floored me. I, absolutely. I mean, I knew it'd be great because, again, Vincent, the cast is just like a who's who. Some of the best actors that worked in the New York adult scene, especially. But, um, oh, my God, I don't think anything can really prepare you just for the emotional experience of this film. How about you, Ashley? I first came across it back, I guess, in the early 90s when I was first getting interested in in adult films. And I think there was a list on it might have been IAFD. So I guess it was I guess it was the late 90s. And they they published a list of must see adult films and then significantly historical adult films. And I remember printing that off and working my way through it. And Roommates was on on that. Um, So that was probably the first time I saw it. The last time I saw it actually was I had the honor of seeing it with Jamie Gillis uh, before he passed away about 10 years ago. He and I sat down and went through a whole bunch of his films and films where he, he you know he featured in but were, were were big films we watched that and he found it hysterical looking back at this particular film i'll show you with you some of his thoughts later on but that was the last time i saw it and it was very enjoyable seeing it with him so i had not really heard of this film i am by no means an expert when it comes to adult cinema and here i am i'm going to be shown up by you guys constantly during this episode so if i say something wrong or anything feel free to correct me because I don't know anything from anything, but I do know sitting down and talking with Larry Ravine or talking to Jane Hamilton, uh, even talking with Jerry Butler. And I would say, what was your favorite film to work on? And all three of them had the same answer and all three said roommates. So that made this a must see for me. So I tracked this one down. I watched it about a year ago. I was, uh, hanging out in my apartment in Shanghai and put this on. I had no idea what to expect. And I think, Heather, you said floored. I was completely floored by this as well. This was, it it was a gut punch. I just didn't expect the heaviness of this movie. And that's not to say that it's bad in any way. It is so impressive. And I can see, I mean, this was like, I don't know, the It Happened One Night of adult films. It was nominated and won so many awards that it was just crazy. And I can see why it was lauded so much at the time, because it did make such an impact. I don't know if it hit you guys the same way, but like if you'd read the description of the plot, you know, I think you'd almost go into expecting like almost like something akin to kind of like some of Sarno's more like 70s work, almost like not quite a soap opera, but something, something, you know, akin to that. And yet the film plays out so raw and emotionally honest. In fact, the only other film I could think of the adult film that in that genre that I found comparable as far as the impact, at least for me personally, was Roger Watkins' American Babylon, uh, which also has Bobby Astier in it in a very different role. Thank God, because, man, I love Bobby Astier, but anytime he plays a bad guy, I'm always like, oh, don't know, sir. Don't <laughs> Don't do that. But, um, but oh, it's, it's a gem that will break your heart, but it's, it's worth exploring. You know, it, it is a gem and it was lauded. I mean, it probably broke the record for number of awards that it won at the time, but it, it wasn't unanimously well received. I was going back to all of the magazines that I had, the sort of vintage magazines and, and articles and so on, and came across two very different schools of thought of people who didn't like it. Um, there, you know, a lot of people did like it and they felt it was this mythical breakthrough crossover film, but there were two schools of thought that didn't like it. On the one hand, um, there was Jim Holiday, a very influential critic back in the day, who, and I don't want to be reductive, of his thinking, but it was kind of, uh, I could kind of summarize it by saying, can we jerk off to it? 
And if we can't, then it's not going to be a great adult film. He admitted it was a good film. He just said it was a bad sex film. Then there was the other side of people who didn't like it, who said, you know, it's wrong to judge a film by how closely it resembles a mainstream film, because essentially it makes adult films inferior by definition to mainstream films. Adult films should be a separate, distinct art, art form. They have license to do things differently, to portray things differently, to show sex in a more explicit way. Therefore, they have more freedom. Therefore, why can't we do something different with those films? Something like Cafe Flesh or the work of the Dark Brothers, for example. So I know that's close to your heart, Heather. Oh, but yes. that, that was a different school of thought. So it, it was a great film, and it's definitely a film that's held up well and, and is worth seeing. But as I say, it wasn't unanimously well received when it came out. That is fascinating because I didn't know that about Halliday and kind of interesting to think of that film being next to something like Cafe Flesh because I know there were people in the adult industry that definitely had a – like a, I know particular Bill Bargold had a very negative opinion of that one because it wasn't sexy. And, yes. you know, the elect, you know, which, but that, what's the point? And I think that's kind of actually, wow, I never thought we could ever like tie those two films together. How cool is this? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was reading the Luke Ford book. You may remember Luke Ford was this, this muckraker back in the, the nineties, uh, for the X-rated industry. And he eventually wrote a book called the History of X. And I just copied down a, uh, a single line that, that he wrote about, um, roommates, I believe, but it was about Chuck Vincent's work more broadly. And he wrote, by emphasizing cinematic element, elements other than graphic episodes of interlocking bodies, Vincent represents what has to be negated in order for straight porn to achieve its telos in the present day. In other words, we have to eliminate what Chucky Vincent is aiming towards to get back to what sex films are meant to be. In other words, the depiction of something that is erotic and arousing. So he, I think that summarizes what Jim Holiday's thoughts were as well. The apotheosis of sex is only when it reduces it to what males apparently supposedly want, when sex is shorn away from all its extraneous trappings. The thing that got me about this film was just how honest it felt when it came to the sex and that it wasn't the glamorous sex. I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but I don't think there's any cum shots in this film whatsoever. And that seems to be in total opposite to what sex films had to be at some point. It felt like it had to include a cum shot. And I think at this point, that was kind of de rigueur was we have to end this with a uh, a happy ending. You do see little bits <laughs> A bit of evidence. A dribble now and then? A bit of evidence, we'll say. Um, but yeah, it's not really the main focus at all. Um, which, which is kind of refreshing because it's like everything, the way that everything's composed is so smartly. Cause even with like specific scenes, cause like when you have, you know, the love scene between like Jane Hamilton's character and Jerry Butler's, like the angles, you know, you don't really have any sort of real proper gynecological close-ups or anything. It's more just about, the glow and the emphasis of these two people connecting. Whereas like when you have a scene with um, Samantha Fox's character, Billy with a, you know, Ron Jeremy is basically like a customer for her services. I mean, you kind of, you have like the classic dog ball shot and everything of, of Ron Jeremy. And, uh, but it makes sense. Cause it's like this encounter is kind of a cold calculated means to an end, which I thought was, you know, very smart. Man, Vincent was the best. You're, you're completely right though about it breaking the grammar of what is normally required of porn films. I, you know, I've spoken to a few distributors back in the day and they, they tell me quite honestly, you know, a film had to have a, uh, a certain type, certain numbers of certain types of sex films. And this, 
this film has no lesbian scene, which was de rigueur. It has no orgy scene. I mean, there is an orgy scene with Samantha Fox, but it's, it's very curtailed and, 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 you know, not particularly arousing. The sex scenes are fairly short. Uh, they're not explicit in the same way that many adult films are close ups, open leg, gynecological shots and, 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 and so on. And, and most of all, the sex is contextually non arousing. Um, there are very few scenes that, uh, as we say in England, if you went into the porn theater with the usual purpose of shaking hands with the unemployed, what are you meant to do if you buy a ticket to the roommates? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That's that's even better than the whole uh, the grindhouse book about, about uh, no hatters. <laughs> yeah, you know, with that, the rating of sex films where if it's a three hatter, it's a money maker. But if there's, you know, if it's a no hatter, you're. You know, you're out of money. It's no good. <laughs> well, just that opening sex scene with Jane Hamilton and uh, the the guy. So she plays a character, um, and I'm going to interchange Veronica Hart and Jane Hamilton. And for folks who may not be familiar, they are one in the same. But it's very interesting that her name is so close to her character's name in here of Joan Harmon. And that initial sex scene of her and uh, Ken, the Don Peterson, who's going by uh, Phil Smith in this one, that is, it starts off kind of sexy, but then it turns very unsexy very quickly. As soon as he gets on top of her and she tells him that she's not ready, and that sets the tone for so much of this film, is this is about men trying to get pleasure at the expense of women. And she is very explicit, like, no, I'm not ready. And he doesn't care. He doesn't listen to her. And that's pretty much the entire relationship right there is just him there to get his rocks off. And after he's done this whole thing of like, oh, I'll leave you some money for the room. I mean, he might as well say the money's on the dresser. He just treats her like a complete whore. And she is so in love with this guy and so just mystified by him thinking that, oh, he's going to leave his wife and we're going to have this life together. And she just has this whole idea in her head of this kind of white picket fence future for them. And you just, your heart breaks for her, your heart breaks for the other girls. And it just keeps breaking through this whole thing. And like I was saying before, the idea of sex being honest, that's a, a thing. Like what I was just talking about her saying, no, I'm not ready and him not caring and carrying on. I mean, that's like a real sex scenario. It's not the saxophone playing, the lights are low. You know, we get a couple of those sex scenes later on in the film, the Jerry Butler one, especially, which is very romantic. And you even get that weird psychedelic slow motion sex scene <laughs> with Sherry later on. But so much of this is there are a lot of wham, bam, thank you, man kind of sex scenes in this because it does really speak to how are these women being used by these men you hit on something really important that the sex is honest and it's it's bad sex a lot of the time but importantly it actually plays a bigger role in the movie than in most other sex films because it actually moves the plot on it develops the character so it's important bad sex because it reveals the character and dynamics in a way through the sex which is is a more subtle way of doing it, perhaps, than than via dialogue. So for once, the act, the, the the film doesn't stop when it has the sex scene. It actually progresses and and, and advances because of the sex. 
Yeah, I've seen some sex films where you could cut out the sex and you would be left with maybe 45 minutes worth of plot. And without the sex, you wouldn't necessarily know that there was no sex. It would just, you would have the dialogue scenes and they would progress with the story because the sex scenes would almost be like little intermissions. And it'd be like, who's going to get together in this configuration? And you don't really care. You know, it's just like, okay, well, now it'll be the maid and the woman who owns the house. And that'll be the butler and the guy who owns the house and that'll be this and that'll be that and then you know it it really doesn't to your point progress that plot maybe whatsoever maybe a little but yeah it doesn't hinge on the sex the way that this film does the thing is like i think with adults you know up to this point too it's you didn't i mean you'd see depictions of you know like rape and like kind of the extreme of bad real sex but i don't think you saw too often like sex that you know it's not as so extreme as saying rape you know it's like the opening scene it's not really rape but it's clearly like this is some bad sex and she's clearly doing this because she loves them but not because she's physically into it and it's like oh it's it's sad but that happens you know that happens a, a lot more often than probably people would like to kind of acknowledge but you also see, like, you see, you know, real sex that is also erotic and fun and playful. So it's not just like, you know, some kind of dwarf night, you know, kind of like criticism of, you know, of sex. It's just, it's just like, well, this is life and it's beautiful and it's ugly. Is it any coincidence, do you think, that this sort of cynical view, often cynical view of, of, of relationships that we're seeing in this movie has been produced in a film that's directed by a gay filmmaker. And I, you know, I don't want to zoom down a rabbit hole, but I've spent a lot of time talking with John Amiro, who is a filmmaker, a gay filmmaker from that period, good friends with Chuck Vincent, who's still alive and well in New York. And he's told me about the cadre of, of gay filmmakers such as Chuck, John Christopher, Bill Slobodian, John and Lem Amiro, who all wanted to be real filmmakers, but were learning their craft in the straight porn business. And his view is they viewed sex in a different way. That was absolutely inevitable. Uh, they're gay. They, 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 their depiction of, of straight sex was always going to be different. And I was interested to come across the Jerry Butler quote, which you may have seen in his bio, uh, Raw Talent, where he said, you know, Chuck is gay and there's nothing wrong with that. But how can a guy who's a softball expert coach a hardball team? The similarities, but it, it ain't the same game. And therefore we have to expect the films to be completely different. And my, my theory as I, as I watched Roommates again is that Chuck's portrayal of roommates shows a rather skeptical and sometimes cynical view of straight relationships and the problematic power dynamic between men and women. And it's the perfect script for him to showcase this idea, three women undergoing degrading tests at the hands of men to show they can survive in the, in the big city. But it, it definitely stands up to a reading of, of the film that it, it's a subversive and queer view of heteronormative sex, I think. Now, that's really fascinating. And God, I love Raw Talent has so many great and at times probably questionable quotes but i love jerry butler <laughs> and he was so great and i mean you pointed that out i mean because think about it jerry butler's character in this film who really is kind of the only male character we get who's just completely on the level like he's a good guy he's respectful he's one he's part of one of probably only two sex scenes that are actually you know erotic and fun and not making you feel a little bit like oh and uh, but his character when you first meet him he's like oh don't worry i'm gay so I think, yeah, I think you're definitely onto something. It's, and I didn't even think about that because it's with Vincent, like, um, cause I recently wrote about a older film of his Blue Summer and that film has a really emotional kind of honesty 
too. And, um, and that one's definitely more, um, I would say kind of like homoerotic, you know, the roommates, but, um, that's some good food for thought. I don't know. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, I was going to, uh, talk about the gay character, gay Eddie, the way that they end up together at the end. And I'm just like, well, was he lying? Was he, is he actually gay? Does he swing both ways? Which is absolutely fine. Did she quote unquote convert him? I mean, I'm very curious as far as how he makes that shift. And yes, that becomes one of the two best sex scenes in the film, because that does feel again, going back to honest, it feels very, very honest. And it feels like those two are in love at that point, And you really feel that on screen. And it's such a nice tender scene, especially after we've had some really horrendous stuff going on in this movie to have that, it makes it even sweeter. But yeah, I was, I was curious as far as like, was Eddie lying before or did he just have feelings for her, for her because they are so close and they share so many things? Yeah, I must admit, I always had a problem with the Jerry Butler character, not to contradict you, Heather, but I always thought, you know, is he gay, but who has been turned straight by, by the Veronica Hart character, which is a pretty offensive trope. Or is he a straight guy who was lying to Veronica to have sex with her, even more sinister? Or is he bisexual, but just hasn't disclosed this to her in a transparent manner, which is a little bit dishonest. Or is he just completely weak and sexually confused and therefore, you know, uh, fairly insignificant as a character? So I was always confused by which, and I, when I last watched it, I watched it with a group of people who all fell into a different one of those camps. And therefore they found that the sex scene, which is ostensibly a, you know, a romantic sex scene hinged on whether you viewed that he'd been, in, he'd be actually been uh, deceiving her up until that point. If you believe that he had, then this sex scene was actually a vindication of that deceit. I never really quite viewed it like that, but I think it's because I, I mean, one of my best friends growing up, you know, she was totally heterosexual and actually had a kid at a very young age, but for eight years was in a relationship with her other best friend, you know, who was a lesbian. And it was one of those things that just sort of happened. So I don't know. I've always kind of view that I think sometimes sexuality and gender are very fluid. And so I didn't really get the vibe off of Eddie that he was like being predatory or being dishonest. It's just like, I don't know. I wish I could say something that sounds more articulate than shit happens. <laughs> but it's I, th- just... I think that's the best explanation. <laughs> so I just took it that, but I mean, I think all of those points you make are, are very valid. And I mean, it's, uh, you know, that's kind of the gift. You know, it's a good film when there's multitudes of ways you can look at a character and look at a situation and kind of take different things from it. It's also a really good film in that it balances three protagonists, that we have these three women at the core of the film. Now, I will say that Sherry gets short shrift when it comes to this movie. She doesn't have a lot going on, and there are times where she, towards the end when she makes a change, we don't really get everything that's going on with her, but the Billy and Joni parts, those are so crucial to this, and I love that they have these two stories going on, three stories ostensibly happening at the same time, and that we're cutting between all three of them, and I never feel like one is taking center stage over another, and it just feels very balanced in the editing, and I really am pulling for all three of these women, and I think, you know, 
Jane Hamilton is is a fantastic actress, but I will say that I think that the Billy and Sherry characters are right there as far as the strength of their performances. I think Samantha Fox especially is really great in this movie, and the things that she has to go through and this whole idea of her trying to get out of prostitution, being pulled back in, being forced back into it, and when she gives her speech about getting out of the life, it, it is one of those moments where it's just like, wow, she really has the chops. This is a fantastic scene. I'm sorry, girls. I'd like to explain. You don't have to. Yes, I do. You're my roommates, and I think you should know the truth. If you haven't guessed by now, I was a hooker. I don't regret it. It was a damn good living. After a year of struggling in this goddamn town, gloomy apartments, office Casanovas, I found out there was another way. And all of a sudden, like that, I was part of the American dream. Gucci handbags, cocktails at the plazas, cats. And all I had to do was spend two hours a night satisfying a lonely stranger. It was fun, exciting. I felt like a rebel, even proud of it. And then the strain. Always on! It was a riot! A regular riot! Some I even cared for. I couldn't take their money. I could have died of loneliness. Well, I'm out. I beat the calendar. It was only a matter of time before those $20 tricks, massage parlors. Well, there you have it. Confessions of an ex-call girl. On sale now. And finer. Finer bookstores all over town. Shit. I don't think that will happen again. How could you let men take advantage of you like that? Shh. You missed the point. It was my choice. And they don't even have sex with each other. <laughs> what's, <laughs> what's happening when you have three three friends, three female friends in an adult film that don't even try to get off with each other? I don't know what the world's coming to. This film is such a gift as far as great acting goes. And the women, just all three of them, and, they, and all three of them are actresses I was, you know, definitely a fan of before going into Roommates. I mean, Jane Hamilton's one of the best. But Samantha Fox is amazing. And I love, I love seeing her in everything. And especially, you know, it's kind of neat to see her in something very dramatic if you're only really used to seeing her in something like, you know, Jack and Jill, you know, which is a lot more lighthearted. But, uh, you know, and Kelly Nichols, like, and I think Kelly definitely of the three probably gets the least credit at least from what I observed as like an actress, but she's fantastic. Um, in fact, I would say that one of the few weaknesses of this film, I, I wouldn't even call it a weakness, but you know, Mike, you alluded to how we kind of know the least about her. She's the one I'd kind of would have liked to see a little more layers. Cause really what we get of her is like, she's this model who has a drug problem and she makes a lot of, bad decisions with men that kind of lead her to getting abused. And so you kind of have like the trope of like the beautiful damaged girl, but obviously, you know, in, in real life, there's more layers to people like that. I mean, she alludes to having a bad relationship with her mother back in California, but we don't really, we don't really get a whole lot of peek into Sherry, I think as a full person, as much as we do the other two. No, we don't. And there are times where we just kind of have to take some leaps. We see her get really trashed at a club and go home with a guy, have that slow motion sex scene that I was talking about earlier. And then when she wakes up in the morning, he 
gives the whole, you're still here, you know, get the fuck out of my house, basically, is what he's telling her. I think it's pretty soon thereafter. I know we have a little bit of Billy trying to help her out and get her a modeling gig, these kind of things, or an acting gig, sorry, in a commercial. Pretty soon thereafter, we get that horrific scene of her being gangbanged and just completely humiliated, peed on, all of these things. And that kind of comes out of nowhere. Now, it's good that it comes out of nowhere insofar as we are completely shocked by it, and it just makes it even more shocking. But unless I blinked and missed something, I don't know what the lead-up is to get to there. I just kind of have to assume this is another one of Sherry's trysts gone awry kind of thing. That, for me, was was completely out of left field when I first saw that. Uh, and and it, for me, it's a slight failing in the film in that there's, there's no explanation for it. I think in this, in this particularly brutal scene, Jamie Gillis is watching on and there's no explanation as to why he would be watching. And then he sends everybody away, gets angry with them, but then proceeds to start an abusive relationship with, with, uh, with Kelly Nichols character. It's a very strange subplot, if you like, with so many sex films suggesting that sex is the solution roommate seems to be suggesting that sex is the problem so many of the sex scenes start off with that as as the premise and that's probably the the worst of them that scene was very nasty and as Especially to me, it definitely not only came out of left field, but I'm not really used to seeing because I've seen a number of Chuck Vincent's films. And I mean, that was some big, ugly like going on. I mean, everything mercifully is kind of more implied. You don't even really see. You don't really see her getting peed on. You don't see her getting violated with the bottle. Thank God. You know, this isn't Alex Dorenzi's roommates. This is Chuck Vincent. <laughs> so it's a little more kind on that. But it's kind of a left field. And it's just, Jesus, like, I mean, you know, that is a big leap to like, okay, you know, she goes home, you know, with this mook at a disco club for a one-nighter. Well, a lot of people did that. Okay, that's fine. But, you know, how do you go from that to like, you're in this like, tenement looking space getting you know raped and gang banged and jamie gillis is over there just kind of watching and seems to be the hero very briefly but then things definitely take a pretty quick turn and i should just add rick marks the film's writer is actually one of the rapists in in that scene uh, as is roy stewart who is a is a you know fairly famous uh, erotic photographer now for tashin and actually correct my memory was right was he also was he in Neon Knights as the father? Uh, Roy Stewart. Yeah, I think I think he was. Let me just uh, maybe I should just check that out before I, I, that that does ring a bell. Um, I know that's like when you said that name, I was like, oh, which Mike? If you yes, he you is. That is him. Oh yeah. my god. Okay. Oh, which Mike? Have you if you haven't seen Neon Knights, you should definitely see Neon Knights because it's it's amazing. Well, I messaged you before that I just got a package with Scoundrels in it. Neon Knights was the other film that was in that package. I just ordered both of those from Diabolic. Those are two of my favorites. I'm very, I can't wait to hear what you think about them. And just another tie-in because I'm, I'm always fascinated by these. Roy Stewart, who was one of the rapists in that scene, actually started his X-rated career, if you like, in a live sex show in Times Square where his partner was Veronica Hart back about uh, five years before this film was made. Ashley, you guys did a wonderful job interviewing him for a Rialto report, because I do remember that piece, and that was a fantastic piece, as usual. So. Oh, thank you. He's an interesting guy. I, I must say, he lives in Paris at the moment, uh, and uh, you know, is, very, is a very interesting photographer. Jamie Gillis, you know, we've talked about him in Water Power and just the 
the immense talent that guy had. And he can play a creep like nobody's business. Oh my God, is he amazing in roommates and just as he's almost a force of nature. And when he shows up in that scene and the way that he's talking to her and then starts to masturbate, but then when he shows up at the apartment, Oh man, my heart just dropped when he shows up just to know that he knows where Sherry lives, where those other two girls live. You know, like I said, I've seen water power. I know what he's capable of. So I'm surprised that the other two make it through this movie on the skate. His performance, whenever he shows up in anything is great, but when he shows up in here, it is so terrifying. Yeah. That's when roommates changes from being almost a TV movie to a roughie and then even a slasher at one stage. You know, I told uh, Jamie that I'd heard from, from Larry Ravine, the, the film's cinematographer, and also I believe uh, Veronica Hart told me the same thing, that Chuck had cast actors, you know, he, he'd written parts for them that was close to their real characters uh, in real life as possible. Of course, Jamie took exception to that and said, you know, are people claiming that I'm a rapist in my private life? Have these people not heard of acting? In, in typical Jamie mock anger. I think the truth is a little bit more prosaic. The film is extremely well cast and uses people who were good at acting those particular types you know veronica hard does a great sort of prim and proper girl in the movie and jamie does this psycho like nobody does and the the adult film industry certainly used him well in that capacity but but rarely better than in roommates i love that montage of Janie reading the sides as she's going out and trying to go to all those auditions and that we have it's i think it's 90 percent men on the other side of that and that you just see her in all those different locations reading these different things and telling these different lies that she has to try to tell in order to get cast for these different roles you know oh i'm 25 no i'm 21 well we're looking for somebody older i can sing i can dance you know we want this we want that and just all of these men constantly telling her no and it's such a great bit and it, it really works well for this. It's fantastic. I think if you were going to put together like a, a reel of some of Janie's best acting, that would have to by far be in there. It's great. It's also heartbreaking though, because it kind of shows just, you know, just the viciousness of trying to make it, you know, trying to get what you love to do as an art to pay the bills. And, you know, that middle usually is not easily met. What did you guys make to the cat commercial or, or the pussy commercial, which I thought was just a fantastic touch? I just watched a movie last week with Morris the cat in there. So Morris has been on my mind a lot. <laughs> and thinking about cat food commercials and looking for, you know, curry brand cat food commercials, those kind of things. So I was just laughing when I saw this again. I was like, oh, there's that cat. I may be guilty here because I... I took it as a huge metaphor in that this pussy was being forced into acting in the commercial at the same time that Samantha Fox is being forced into sex. Both are expected to do what's good for them. And if necessary, they're going to be forced forced and pushed around by a male who has more power. And then at the end of the, the pussy commercial, the crowd applaud for doing what's good for it. But Samantha Fox doesn't do what's expected of her and, and uh, you know, pisses Bobby off big time. So for me, it was all uh, all wrapped up in that metaphor, but maybe I'm w reading way too much into a, a porno movie. You're in the right place for it. <laughs> the way that like both are intercut back to back, I think actually kind of lends itself pretty well to that theory. I mean, right to the point where they even have the cat like on a leash and being prodded. Exactly. With a stick. Yeah. Boy, that, okay. So that's another thing that's darker for me now. <laughs> well, well, here's that's a question for you then, because... I, I read a couple of reviews that said this was one of the first 
commercially successful feminist adult films. And then I read a couple of views, same period of time, same, same era, that said this was one of the first truly misogynist um, adult films made. And I was just trying to reconcile, can a film be both feminist and misogynist? And if, if, if not, obviously, then which, which side of the fence do I come down on? That's always a sticky wicket, isn't it? When it comes to trying to have that, have that kind of discussion, especially with, you know, films, I mean, adult, I mean, I don't have to tell you guys anything you don't know. It's, I mean, pretty like big target as far as like what a lot of classic feminists will like to attack and very wrongfully. So the film didn't hit me as one way or the other. I didn't see it as feminist. Uh, I didn't see it as misogynistic. I just kind of saw it as just like, well, this life is ugly sometimes and sometimes it's the big ugly and i just kind of took it as that to be you know i certainly wouldn't view it as misogynistic i don't really look for feminism in films too unless it's just kind of obvious though to be honest i'm not i'm not i've I've never been of that school i've actually lost gigs (laughs) i think because i'm i don't always automatically look for that Bad things happen to all of these women. A lot of really bad things happen to them. I mean, just looking at the, uh, the Billy role with her being pushed back into prostitution. And then you have that bright spot of her meeting Jim, the Jack Wrangler character. And they have, this is the other really touching sex scene, them having sex and trying to be quiet while the roommates are out and him going down on her. All of this is really, really nice. And they're playing and they're playful. You know, who is going to get their clothes off first? These kind of things. Great, great scene. And then to find out later on when she's forced to go to a bachelor party and who's the bachelor but this character and her just crying and, you know, like, get it over with and having this guy with this little dick having sex with her. It is so heartbreaking. So I can see bad things happening to these girls, but I don't see the film reveling in it. And I think the film and the filmmakers know that these are bad things. So I can't really see this being a misogynist film because bad things happen to good people. And I don't see this film just like, Oh, we're going to take this woman's face and just shove it in shit for an hour and a half. And uh, isn't this funny? There's so much pathos to this, right? It's not titillating. It doesn't glorify it. I, I, I agree. That's the side I came down on as well. As far as being feminist, I'm not really sure because at the end of the day, some people are better off, but not necessarily. I think our characters are being a little bit more, self-realized by the end of the film that they've come through some more deals that I don't think they'll have to go through again. At least that's my hope, even though it ends in a very cyclical way with this whole calling Billy for information about the rooms and her saying almost the exact same thing at the end of the film as what she said at the beginning of the film. So it's like, well, this might be happening to more women, but hopefully the same thing doesn't happen to Billy. Maybe she'll get two other roommates who have horrible things happen to them. But hopefully they'll come through it well uh, as well. The film's heart is very firmly anchored with the women. You know, you're there with them along the ride where misogy- you know, a misogynist film would definitely not be taking that. I have to say, even with all of the heavy stuff going on in here, there's still a couple lines in this movie that make me laugh out loud. Like when Jack Wrangler asks uh, Billy, what's it going to be, French, Greek, or what? You know, for dinner. 
It, it's Jack Wrangler, so, I mean, he's such a likable actor, so he's perfectly cast as Jim, because he, you know, when you first see him, he's almost a breath of fresh air compared to some of the guys that we've seen, like Ted, like Veronica Hart's professor, lover, you know, character, and, and you know, and a lot of the other males. But um, it was Jack Wrangler, I mean, even though he was, you know, kind of straight for pay, like he was gay in real life, like him and Samantha Fox, I think, always have, like, just a really good friendly chemistry. So it's always just nice to see these two together. So we've got the straight for pay guy playing a straight guy, but then we have the straight guy playing the gay guy. Seems kind of weird. I think those are the only two good guys in the movie. So, you know, given that the director was a gay guy, it's kind of ironic. Though at the end of the day, I wouldn't consider Jim to be too much of a good guy. I suppose not. Him showing up at that bachelor party is... I had forgotten it. I pushed it out of my mind. And then when I rewatched this, I was like, oh, man, come on. That's so sad. God, Samantha Fox, like when she starts crying and her back's towards, I mean, that, I think that has got to be one of the best gut-wrenching emotional responses in the film, at least for me. That just, uh, that's so strong. Especially because Billy is like a strong character. Like she's not naive. In the, in the ways that, say, like Joan is, and she's not, you know, quite a, as a damage case as Sherry, but yet, you know, you know, she's kind of just put in this awful situation. I mean, to be honest, I kind of almost was afraid that scene was going to turn worse because we, you know, there's that whole line she has earlier about, oh, bachelor parties are the worst. Yeah. You know, so I was like, oh, thank God at least it didn't turn into like a, you know, like a similar nightmare situation with the earlier gangbang, but, um, that's still pretty, just like pretty sad. And we don't see Jim again. That's that's it for Jim. Yeah, I was picturing Requiem for a Dream. I thought maybe soon she'd have to go oh, ass no. to ass with another girl. <laughs> In a movie like this, there is always that risk as far as, are these women going to be supportive of one another, or are they going to cut each other down? Is this going to then turn into uh, another movie that we talked about, Heather? Is this going to turn into Showgirls, where we now have the women fighting against one another rather than holding each other up? And there's a great moment where Joan is criticizing Billy and was just like, how could you let men take advantage of you? Talking about her days as a prostitute and Billy saying, it's my choice. And then almost immediately we cut to Joan with her acting coach, Ken, and he is 100% taking advantage of her. And she doesn't even seem to realize that it does. It She doesn't realize until she meets Mrs. Ken. And this is just one of the most humiliating scenes in the movie when it's Ken and his wife come to the big city to go see a Broadway play, seeing a play that Joan can't necessarily yet get into because she's at the bottom rung of the the acting ladder. And here they're going to see this Broadway play, 42nd Street, I think it is. And then when Mrs. Ken talks about how she's pregnant and that her husband can never leave her alone and what a sex maniac he is, which contradicts 100% what he was saying earlier in the film in that first sex scene that he hasn't touched his wife in over a year. And just to see that heartbreak on Joan's face is really effective and that she finally realizes now that everything that she thought was a lie. Yeah, it's the, it's the death of a dream. You know, there's kind of having that illusion in, in life of something, especially because I think a lot of people will look at women in the sex industry 
and say, oh, how could how could she let herself get in a situation? Or they'll even make an assumption like, oh, they're drugged out or they have it's an abusive like sex trafficking kind of situation. And I mean, that does happen. But, you know, the reality is that we it's very easy for people to get taken advantage of. And it's easy. And it's also easy to just assume that's only with like, you know, an example of like a call girl. But it's like, no, we get taken advantage of and do things we don't always thought we would do. That makes a lot of sense, and it ties in with my reaction to watching it this time, which was that I viewed it differently in light of the whole Me Too movement. In other words, I was more aware of power dynamics which were causing dysfunctional relationships between characters than I had been before. Previously, I thought, you know, these two people are getting together. They're, that's that's fine. It's their choice. They both are choosing that. But then when you realize that there are some – nearly all of the, the male-female power dynamics in, in roommates are based on the male having the, the power and, and, and taking advantage of the women. And that comes across as a lot more coercive, for example. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you can get as far as the whole Marv character. Did Marv, I know it's, it's not, uh, Lloyd Kaufman, but did Marv remind anybody else of Lloyd Kaufman? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would say so. Oh, God. When he forces her to her knees, Billy forces Billy to her knees to give him, uh, a blowjob. That is just, oh. It is so terrible, and I'm so glad when she spits on his shoes. Which he just finished polishing in the previous scene. I thought that was a nice touch. Ah, that was an excellent, excellent touch. And, you know, getting to see – I love the fact that this film has both Jamie and Bobby Astier in it, because I think those two – not only are two of my favorite actors, but both men are always really, were really good at being able to do like light comedy and be very funny and romantic, but also could be scary and just sinister and just the complete, you know, opposite end of the spectrum. I mean, Jamie does scary like nobody's business. Bobby, I think, makes a great villain here and he could definitely be kind of scary in a lot of films. It's always curious to me, like, I don't know if you guys ever wonder about just sort of the interpersonal dynamics behind the scenes, because I know that, like, Samantha and Bobby, of course, were, you know, a couple for several years and seem to have a really great relationship. And I'm always like, God, that must be so weird when you have to, I mean, I know it's acting, but when you're having to kind of, like, play just, like, such a hideous scenario with each other. You know, Bobby was a stand-up comedian for a time in the 70s as well. I don't know if it was a full-time gig, but he did a lot of sort of MC work, stand-up comedy, and so on, which always plays out nicely for me when I think of that and see him in these roles where he's so sleazy and so manipulative. As soon as you said that, I was just like, oh, I can totally see that. Oh, absolutely. Well, especially because like when we right before we started the Skype, uh, I was telling Mike about Big Abner, which oh, yeah. has nothing to do with roommates. But Bobby is just so goony and hilarious in it, and it's you know if you watch those two films back to back, you'd be like, "That's the same guy." Like, those, <laughs> <laughs> that's Marv. Like, what's going on? But that's a, I think, a testament to just how amazing Bobby Astier was. Yeah, sad loss. I'm not as familiar with my Tennessee Williams as I probably should be, but I was always curious if Joan making two references and going on to play Blanche Dubois in Streetcar, if that might have some sort of thematic overtones to it. Does she always rely upon the kindness of strangers as well? Or I'm not sure, but I mean, that seemed like it might have been a, a reference to something in here. I have to admit my uh, my Tennessee Williams knowledge is is definitely not uh, what it should be, you know. And I'm from the South. Like, what's wrong with me? But well, there's the South, and then there's New Orleans. True. <laughs> New Orleans is its own. <laughs> it's like Texas, you know. Both are in the South, but both are sort of their own their own thing. <laughs> 
it does feel like a big produ- production. You know, it has uh, a huge cast, uh, some interesting people in, in the cast as well, like Henri Pichard or Ron Sullivan, who obviously big adult film director as the uh, the photographer. Uh, we spoke about Roy Stewart and Rick Marks, but John Christopher, who was a, a close colleague of uh, Chuck Vincent also uh, is, makes an appearance in there. Also, the photographer. Um, th- there's a, a scene with a waiter who was uh, Chuck Vincent's close friend and sort of roommate for about 20 years. A guy an Italian called Marco Nero. He's in the movie, and, and one of my all-time favorite elderly actors, a- actresses, a lady called Cami Graham, who is in the opening. Misty Beethoven uh, makes an appearance in the post-show party. I don't know if you remember that, but there's there's an older lady who's sort of welcomed into the uh, into the party. She has a couple of uh, couple of short uh, lines of dialogue. She was used by Radley Metzger in um, in uh, Barbara Broadcast, and uh, she had a fascinating career as as an actress in in uh, Long on Long Island. Uh, did a lot of summer stock for years. Her kids left home. She became a grandmother. And then she suddenly acquired this, this career as a bit part actress in porn films, made about uh, 10 to 15 porn films. Never, I should hasten to add, in a sex role. But she was in her late 70s, early 80s by this stage. And um, she was even offered to um, strip off and take all her clothes off for one of the men's magazines of the, of the, of the time, I think at the age of 78, which she did. And um, there's a centerfold of her um uh, you know in just like a, a regular playboy centerfold except that it had had this 70 year old actress who was in the the autumn of her life discovering this this strange career as a as an extra in porn movies just a, an interesting story that uh, that i always spot her in, in these movies and it always causes me to smile more power to her that's oh fantastic my god. i'm just my mind is blown that that's the same woman for misty yeah. as soon as you said that, i was like oh my god it's her <laughs> yeah that whole scene was so much fun though because it was just i know there's like at one point there's this guy who just yells out can i borrow your brussels sprouts like that <laughs> it's yes. like such a <laughs> such a dada line and it's uh and perfect especially for theater people but um and yeah i totally i smiled when i saw ron sullivan and there i was like oh my god that's henry pichard and i think you briefly see merle michaels as yes. like one of the actresses uh auditioning yes that's right it really feels like a repertory company and so part of the fun when you get used to seeing the films is spotting people who you recognize from from, from other movies yeah, whenever Ron Jeremy shows up, I'm just like, Ron! <laughs> <laughs> and he was good in those days. He really was good. Oh, yeah. And he just says that virginal, I mean, I don't know if he was a virgin or if he had only been with his wife or girlfriend, but him just, you know, stammering and stuttering and just being so nervous around Billy was fantastic. And I'm surprised that she went twice with him. I thought for sure she'd just jerk him off and then say like, okay, see ya and take off. See, I thought that too. And I was like totally kind of egging her on. I'm like, go girl. Like he's, he's, he's good. Just, <laughs> just tell him to have a nice night and, and leave. But yeah, Ron Jeremy was such a great actor. Like it's it's sort of like it's weird because I know he's got more fame, you know, on a mainstream level as the hedgehog or you know whatever. But when you see films like this and the aforementioned scale, you definitely are like, no man, he's really he's he's got the goods. Ashley, you had actually gone over to the studio where this was shot. Is that correct? Yeah, you know, funnily enough, you may recall a scene in Roommates where they're shooting a commercial outdoors. I think it's, from memory, a commercial for bags, is it, for luggage? And you see a woman walking down the sidewalk, and she's mugged. And then they turn to the, the narrator, and he says, you know, if only she'd had 
this kind of bag. I may be misremembering it, but I think that's the gist of it. Um, that actually shot right in front of Adventure Studios, which uh, is not uh, Chuck Vincent's studio, but is maybe the ground zero for for movies shot in New York in the 1980s. It was it was where all of the Avon movies, for example, were shot. It was where uh, Ron Sullivan shot nearly all of his movies. Joe Sano ended his career shooting all of his his videos, and that's literally on the sidewalk outside. Of, of that studio it's, it's it's funny to see it now that's in queens when that scene started up and the person was mugged i was just like is this just showing how bad new york is right now and then when they cut you know pan over to that guy and he gives that line i'm just like okay that was weird <laughs> yeah they got you there oh they definitely did that was a fantastic luggage ad well actually i have a question for you both and it's going back to the kelly nichols character and Mike, I know you spoke to sort of the nebulousness of like, uh, is any, you know, are the girls really going to be better off? And with her, I was the most curious because, you know, she's going back to California to be with her mother. And it seems like it's set up like, oh, this will be good for her. And yeah, I mean, at least she's getting away from Joel, the Jamie Gillis character. But it's like, but she alluded to in the, you know, the first act, we don't get along. And it's like, she's obviously got like some past sort of damage to be self-medicating the way she is. So I'm like, is it good that she's going back to her mom? Because I don't know. I mean, if her mother's kind of a piece of work, too, maybe I put too much thought into it. But I'm just like, oh, I don't know if she's really going to be better off, you know? I don't think he did. No, I picked up on that as well. It's like, okay, yeah, you're getting rid of all your pills all of a sudden rather than weaning herself off of them. And then, yeah, just I'm going to pack up and move back to California or wherever and be with my mom. It's like, yeah, maybe that's where the problem started at. It doesn't sound like you have a really good support network. It didn't feel like a happy ending to me for that reason. You know, obviously with Samantha Fox's character sat in the same place starting to re-rent the, the apartment and the other two going back to kind of, you know, broken dreams or, or where they started from. It felt like a bit of a downer, but nevertheless, it felt like the right way to end because they become wiser, hopefully, through the course of the film. And that, that was the, uh, the minor triumph, I guess. I do have some good news about this movie is that I talked to uh, Stephen at Distropix and it sounds like they are going to be remastering this and putting it out on Blu-ray with a bunch of extras and stuff. So I'm really happy about that because as we were talking about before we started recording, if you go out and try to buy this on Amazon, you're going to be ended up with a uh, Peter Falk movie. Looks like you can buy it on Blu-ray and DVD, but look out. Once you click that button, man, you're seeing D.B. Sweeney and Peter Falk just tearing it up. That brings up some mental images I don't think I was prepared for. So, yeah, this movie definitely needs to be seen by folks who might not be familiar with it. It's not a feel-good film by any means of the imagination, but it definitely is one that leaves an impact, and it is just so well made. I I highly recommend it. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's one of the best, and, you know, it's a great way, you know, if you love great acting – and, you know, kind of a raw approach to emotional stereotype, like storytelling, then um, Roommates is a fantastic place to go to. All right, we're going to take a break and play a trio of interviews. The first is with Joan Harmon herself, Jane Hamilton. The second is with roommate cinematographer Larry Ravine. And the third is with writer Rick Marks. And we'll be back with all of those right after these brief messages. Hello from Cinema Detroit. We are Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema and also the only first-run, seven-day-a-week movie theater in greater downtown. We deliver an eclectic mix of mainstream, art, indie, 
genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine or a DJ mixing a set, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro area, the state of Michigan, or the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features a unique setting in a former furniture store and a warm neighborhood atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.org, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you soon at 4126 3rd Street in the city, 48201. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, adamneed.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B. O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com This is Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast Proudly Resents and you listen to my favorite movie podcast The Projection Booth
I know. It's messed up, right? When was the first time that you worked with Chuck Vincent? It was a movie called Fascination, and Ron Jeremy was the star of that one. So there was there was two versions of Fascination. There was the X-rated version where Ron Jeremy starred. Then there was the R-rated version called Sex Appeal, and that was with uh, Louis Bonanno. I think he was the star of that one, you know, the male lead. And I got to be in both of those. So I just had a very, very, very small part in Fascination. I think I played a secretary or more like a sexitary. Um, <laughs> and that was the first uh, thing with, with Chuck. Chuck was, oh, what a great guy. I, I loved him so much. He kind of made roommates after we girls. In other words, it, I played a character that was an actress that had graduated college because I was an actress and I graduated college, you know. Samantha, she wasn't really a hooker, but she did. She'd had a, a tough time with a couple of her husbands. And Kelly Nichols was indeed a model. You know, she was a model and she had model looks and, and all of that. And she hadn't particularly been abused. But he kind of based it loosely on our ourselves. That was a really, really wonderful thing. And those ladies were amazing, amazing, amazing to, to work with. And I'm still very good friends with Kelly Nichols. Yeah, I noticed that your character name is as close to your real name as I ever saw you play. He was so fun. You would, and you would, you know, he treated it like real a movie. We would have, you know, read throughs. Uh, you'd get together, you know, you'd go for wardrobe fittings. You'd have a table read. So it was like a real production. And he handled it very business like. You know, I mean, he was very, I can hear him yelling, let's get this show on the road. Okay, everybody, you know. <laughs> he was great because, um, that was one of my earlier ones with Chuck, but when Chuck got to know me really well, it's like if he had a part that he he didn't know what to do with, he just ah, give it to Hamilton. She'll do something with it. <laughs> so Jane Hamilton is my other name. So that's uh, and he called me Hamilton. He didn't call me Veronica. I was Janie and Hamilton to him. Hamilton. Yeah, he called me by my last name. That was written by Rick Marks. What was he like to work with? Ricky's great. I mean, he's still writing. I think he runs a, a newspaper in upstate New York, and he's awesome. He and he and Chuck worked really well together. I mean, there's a whole kind of family there for a while. We worked a lot. A lot of the people there were the same over and over again. Uh, Jennifer Delora. After I got out of adult, then I think Jennifer Delora came on the scene because Chuck did tons of R-rated movies too. Jen uh, Jennifer Delora. Samantha Fox was a favorite of his. Kelly Nichols was a favorite. Randy Spears I met first. When he wasn't doing adult, he was doing um, R-rated things. For a long time, Randy didn't work in adult, but he was making movies. And then finally, he did do adult. And now, of course, he's out of adult again. Yeah, there was all a family. The Amaro brothers, they, they were all really close. Of course, Larry Ravine was the cinematographer. Jeffrey Wallach was usually the... Those people are alive. And not Lem Amaro, but John Amaro's still with us. And a lot, a lot of people still are. Yay! Gloria Leonard. She was in Roommate. She's no longer with us. She's passed as well. Tell me, what do you remember about the shoot? You know, it was fun. We 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 went to a lot of different locations for it. I can't remember how many days we actually took shooting it, but you know, that was in the days where we you might take a week to shoot a movie, and I would assume we did on that one because there was um, that outside stuff, and that was all. Uh, I think I think that was upstate New York. Uh, there was uh, apartments in New York. The one thing I really remember about that shoot, which got me in a heck of a lot of trouble with my husband uh, later. No, it got me into trouble with it when I was shooting it. When I work with uh, Jerry Butler, the scene 
didn't feel like a porno scene. It was very soft, very romantic, very loving. It felt like love. And I told that to my husband, who I was not married to at the time, but I was seeing that it, that scene felt like love. And he got the idea that I was in love with Jerry Butler. It wasn't at all. But the, it was reminiscent of love. It felt like love. It was a very loving scene. It, and it, it did. It felt like love. And that was the first time, I guess, that I'd performed sexually where it felt intimate and quiet and, and like love. Yeah. Yeah, it did feel like that. So that's the, the thing I remember most. I think the funny thing about roommates, it wasn't like really sexually titillating so much. It was kind of more matter of fact about the sex. I remember I gave it to um, a lesbian couple, girlfriends of mine. They'd never seen an adult film before. And I said, oh, here, check this out. And they were so depressed after watching it. The last thing they wanted to do was to have sex. You know, it was kind of a cross between a real movie and a uh, an adult film. It was great because it played uh, the 12th Street Playhouse in New York, the midnight shows for a long time. And that was this, you know, I mean, they would show culty films and stuff like that, but they weren't an adult movie house and they played roommates. Judith Christ in the New York Times reviewed it, you know? So it was kind of a crossover film, but it wasn't, it wasn't a feel good porno. You know, where the girls were running around going, Oh, do me, do me, do me you know. But it but it was a it was a film with sex in it. So it wasn't really a mainstream film. It was kind of something something different. I don't know if that worked out for Chuck financially or not. Do you know what I mean? Because it, it, it yeah, kinda of straddled tried to straddle both worlds. And I don't you know, I loved it. I loved it for me. Okay, so what I always wanted to do was exactly that. I wanted to do a mainstream film that had sex in it and that portrayed sex amazingly. And um, I always wanted to do that. And I don't have to do it anymore because it's been done now so well. I mean, thank God for cable. There's always been mean sex and violent sex and, you know, people getting shot and, you know, but now there's also nice, nicer depictions of sexuality. And I'm just so happy about that. And now I don't have to do it. <laughs> so I'm not, <laughs> I'm not even thinking about it. So it's great that somebody else did it so well. Roommates is kind of a gut punch when you're done with it. It's like, wow, that was really Yeah. Happy. You know, some sick stuff happens. I mean, he kind of based it on Jamie too. Jamie was a sadist. He really was. He really got off on that and he really enjoyed it. You know, we had an interesting relationship, but I certainly wasn't one of his favorites by any means. He enjoyed that whole the power thing between couples. And I'm, you know, I'm kind of a pretty vanilla girl. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not that. I'm not, I'm not an S and Mer. I like the look of it. You know, I like uh, tight, you know, PVC and protruding flesh and red lips and you know, dark eyes and that. But as far as actually being in that scene, that's not me. You know, that's not where I live. And he definitely, you know, had that side about him. He, uh, he would take his girlfriend and tie her up in a hotel bed in New York and go down on the street and have guys come up and do her. <laughs> yeah. He was, um, yeah, it was, I think that was with Serena, I know. So yeah, he was, he was, um, he was dramatic and drastic. And like I said, Chuck kind of based the characters on us loosely. <laughs> 
Well, did you have anybody in your life using you like the the man is using you in roommates? I think if you're a woman and you're sexual, everybody uses you. I had a lot of that, I guess, uh, growing up. You know, there, were, there was a time when I realized, hey, am I happy with all of this? I'm making... Okay, so there's a, there's a time where you feel as a young woman, and if you are sexually inclined, you feel sexual your sexual power, you know, and you feel that you you know, can make people feel good and they like having you around and they like being with you and it's kind of a, you know, a thing where a young girl kind of feels this power that she has. So that's very exciting and intoxicating and I did that very well, but I was I was really good at it and I was making sure everybody was feeling good. And then after a while, it's like, wow, I make everybody feel good. Is it Am I feeling good about this? Is this what I really want? You know? And that was an interesting time in my life because it led me to be more sexually diverse. That's when I started uh, checking out women, seeing if, you know, women were my thing, you know? And they are, as well as men. I mean, I was very... Uh, I like I enjoy people. I like people. It's, I don't think it's tied into their genders, you know? I've always been married to a male, and my primary relationships have been with men. But I certainly have enjoyed the time I've been with women. That's for sure. You know, as a uh, a person now in 2018, and you hear about a movie called Roommates with these three stunningly attractive women in it, and it's an adult-themed film. You're thinking for sure, well, it's just going to be them having sex with each other all the time, and it's all right. <laughs> I never thought about that, and we don't. No, you're you're friends, and it's so nice to see you supporting one another. Yeah, yeah, and I I think that. <sighs> You know that's that's kind of kind of what we did. Remember um, Club Ninety we had with, and that's with you know my girlfriends Gloria Leonard, Candida Royale, Kelly Nichols was a part of it at the very beginning, and Sue Nero and uh, Annie Sprinkles. Um, yeah, I mean we had a we have a women's support group. Uh, we're down to three people in it now. Uh, Sue Nero and Kelly Nichols left quite early. Uh, we did a, a performance at the Franklin Furnace called Deep Inside Porn Stars. Uh, we were together for that. And then I know that uh, Kelly and then Susie left, Sue Nero. And then um, it was just uh, Veronica and Annie and Candace and Gloria and myself, the five of us. And then, you know, Gloria's passed and now Candace has passed. We have kind of honorary members in um, Linda Montano. She's an amazing performance artist, just an amazing person, period, life artist kind of person. And Barbara Corellis. But Barbara's been very, very busy with her career. She uh, teaches a lot of Tantra and writes books now and does workshops. So still hear from Linda a lot. And, of course, Annie and Veronica are two of my best girlfriends in the whole wide world. And we've been there for each other for all this time. My, my, it started at my son's uh, baby shower before he was born, and he just turned 35. 35, Mike! I've got a 35-year-old son. <laughs> Is that amazing? It amazes me. I can't believe it. My other son's 33 now, so crazy. So we've been going for 35 years. And I just want to tell you, it's, it's very exciting. The Schlesinger Library at um, Harvard is having us as part of their collection. Club 90 is part of their collection. They've already got Gloria Leonard's archives. They've got Candida Royale's archives. I believe Veronica's going in 
you know, uh, Jane Kaminsky is coming to talk with me. I think May she'll be out here and we'll go through stuff. First of all, it's really validated me for being such a, <laughs> a hoarder all these years because I've carried around a lot of stuff, you know, just, um, and a lot of it was letters and postcards and stuff like that, communications. And, and you know, I'm, I'm a sap. I love it when, when I get things and, you know, people send me stuff. I still have writings from, you know, when I was in high school. I don't know junior high, but definitely high school. You know, when I was first doing traveling in Europe and all that kind of stuff. So to actually have it be worth something, that somebody values it as a part of history, as a a segment of a female life in our times, is kind of fucking awesome, man. <laughs> you know, it's just, gosh, it's how... How wonderful to be part of history like that. I'm just so thrilled. And they have, they do all sorts of women. I think they just had Angela Davis collection in. Um, they've got, uh, they have a woman from the turn of the century who was just, uh, you know, lived on a farm, but she kept diaries. So they have all sorts of different kind of women. And, uh, they have the anti-pornographers too. I think they have Andrea Dworkin and, you know, but they've, it's so wonderful that we get to go down as part of history and part of a movement, part of the sexual movement. I mean, because all of us women, maybe at times we've been victimized, but we're not victims. You know, we are, we are victors. We, we've chosen our own path. We've not been coerced or, you know, anything like that. And we're thinking women who've chosen the sex field. Uh, so it's awesome. <laughs> it's awesome to, to be recognized as part of this society. Which we are, damn it. What do you think about the whole Me Too movement? I think it's really, really fucking great for women who have been taken advantage of or whatever to be able to come up or be raped or anything. They, they need validation. That's really amazingly wonderful. I've been on the other side. I've, hmm. okay. So one of the, one of the things I really admire about Stormy in, in her interview, she made it quite clear that she wasn't a victim. You know, she wasn't. There's there's something about taking responsibility for your actions that I think is really important in the conversation about all of this. I learned very quickly that if you didn't want to sleep with a guy, you would not go to his hotel room unescorted. You know, she said... I got myself into this situation. You know, I went to his hotel room. That was my choice, right? She said that. So there, there are certain things that you have to learn as a woman. Does that mean anybody's got the right or, you know, I'm not talking about what's right. I'm just talking about the world and what happens. You know, you don't, if, I'm not shaming anybody. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, it's very, it's very, tricky kind of thing here so you know it's never okay to be raped it's never ever ever you know there's there's never a time when a you know it's very dangerous to think that when a when a woman says no she really secretly wants it no a woman says no that's no you know so rape is rape is never okay um, non-consensual sex is is never ever ever okay 
But at the same time, you've got to learn as a person in our society that if you don't want certain things to happen, you 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 can't continue to make bad choices. You know, you can't continue. You know, is it right if you get drunk and people take advantage of you? No, it's not right. But it does happen. So as a female, you learn not to get too drunk or too high that you're not aware of what's going on. You know what I mean? So, so, so to me, it's a kind of a loaded thing. I'm all about Me Too. I'm glad these women have stood up. I thought that the sexual power game was just a fact of life, you know, and everybody knew about it and kind of accepted it. And that's the way it's kind of always been in Hollywood. I mean, that's, that's what I figure, you know, I, I wasn't surprised about any of it, you know. It's happened. It's happened to me. Have I ever gotten apart from having sex with somebody? I don't think so. You know, even when I was going with Harold Lyme, I think he liked me because I was a an actress, a pretty fair actress. Well, you know, could deliver lines and show up and not be stoned or high or anything like that. So, and I found that uh, the times that I have had sex with people in the entertainment industry, it certainly. Unfortunately, hasn't gotten me anywhere, but I know of other cases where it has. Well, Jane, thank you so much for your time. It is always such a pleasure talking with you. You are so sweet, Mike. You are so, so sweet and so very kind. And if I make it out to Michigan, you can make sure we're going to have to meet up. <laughs> Does that sound, sound like a plan? Yeah, definitely. Right on. And I hope people really enjoy roommates because it's it's a good one. It's a really good one. Um if you're into seeing your adult actresses acting, if not, next. <laughs> this was... 1982 that roommates came out and the one thing that i have found talking to people about adult films is that you guys shot them so quickly that there weren't those things where it was like oh it took so long to put together so long to shoot and so long to come out afterwards that there were those bonding moments but i guess you guys were actually bonding because you just kept shooting film after film after film together yes yes uh chuck chuck vincent uh, whose um, baby that was, um, you know, I have w- been working with him since uh, about 78 because I was able to um, keep a crew together and keep them working. And Chuck did likewise with uh, talent. You know, uh, we, we were able to um, crank them out, as they say, although the roommates was a, was a, a specific endeavor to try to get couples into the theater. That was the impetus uh, for that. Um, but we did, Chuck was Chuck was very very organized and very he had the he had the best systems for doing the most complicated things. He could do it so simply; it was unbelievable. He had a great mind for that. So, do you know where the idea for this one came from? I mean, he wrote the script. He and Rick Marks wrote the script based on Samantha Fox, um, Veronica Hart, and. Um, Kelly Nichols, uh, who had all worked with Chuck quite a bit, and he he wrote the script designed around them. And the 
the characters in the script are not far from their uh, real personalities. Um, uh, Veronica Hart uh, being the, the girl next door, Samantha Fox being the ex-hooker, Kelly Nichols being the kind of bad girl. He designed it based around them. So, But the, the impetus for doing the film then was that, as I said, uh, trying to get couples into the theater. At this point, uh, 1982, cable had not, it was not a reality. Uh, and uh, so everything was done for theatrical release. And uh, roommates, originally the, the premiere screenings and, and, and the first two weeks of the showings were at the Quad Theater, which is, uh, you know, a legitimate theater in New York City. So that was that was sort of the design behind the whole thing was to get to the crossover film. Everybody wanted to do theatrical crossover film and that was Chuck's bid to uh, get it, you know, to, to be the one that really brought people in. Were there two versions of it? Was there like the hardcore insert version and then the softer version or was what we saw what we got? Um, there, there were on all, all of the films um, that I worked on, the X films. There was always a uh, hard version and a soft version. And what I mentioned about um, Chuck being very organized, he would cut the uh, sex scenes, um, make the soft version frame for frame, the start frame and end frame, so that in the release prints, uh, he could simply not change the soundtrack at all. But in the actual release print, they would splice the softcore version. Uh, they had a softcore kit, he called it, and that he would just replace the sex scenes with a soft uh, with a soft version, and didn't have to change the soundtrack at all. And I imagine you were shooting what thirty five on this? Yeah, um, all all the films with Chuck were thirty five. Uh, that was the standard at that point. The very few films got made in 16. Although we did do one film in 16. It was it was under Chuck's auspices, but uh, Bill Slobodian, who was uh, Chuck's partner at that time, uh, did, we did a film in Puerto Rico, and it was just more realistic to in terms of the equipment and so forth to do in 16. But everything else was 35. What was it like working with Jack Wrangler? Jack was great. He, you know, he had such a um, professional attitude because he was mentored in in Hollywood. He was a child star, I think, on Bonanza, uh, one of those films, and so he um, he was quite professional. Uh, uh, he was very endearing, even to say work, working with him because he had a very professional attitude and he could deliver. Yeah, I mean, Jack could really deliver. Not only you know uh, the lines, but he could create a personality around it. As a matter of fact, he he would correct people if they called him uh, a, a porn star by saying that he was not a porn star; he was a personality. Of course, he did you know he did a lot of gay films too. Uh, he was kind of the poster child at one point for um, the gay market. I did uh, some films with him that were gay films, but he was on the cover of uh, all of the gay magazines. He and, and George Payne both were kind of the uh, poster boys of that era around the early 80s. 
And uh, no, he was Jack was terrific to work with and to just be around. You know, I went to dinner with he, he was um, he he lived with Margaret Whiting of the Whiting Sisters, and he um, you go to his house and it was really a pleasure to be around him. He, he and Margaret and uh, their pet rabbit. As far as the the actual logistical differences between shooting a straight adult film and shooting a gay adult film at that time, it seems like a sex scene between a man and a woman can go on forever. And I'm curious if it's the same thing when it comes to shooting a gay sex scene or if there are like logistical differences, like is there always like a double cum shot or how does that kind of work out? They were identical in terms of, at least the ones I did, they were identical in terms of, you know, you shot for, uh, the way it worked was um, in, in 35, um, you, I would shoot um, roughly uh, a 400-foot magazine, maybe a, a 600 feet. That would be, uh, there's, uh, you know, the uh, or two two magazines. The, the, the finished product was roughly around seven minutes. There would be probably around seven sex scenes in a, in a feature film. So that's that's 50 minutes of out of an 80-minute film. And the rest for the standard, uh, you know, the typical uh, X-rated films, I'm sorry, they weren't 80 minutes, they were 70 minutes. So uh, the, the, the the balance of the 20 minutes would be the, what they call the wraparound uh, story. But Roommates was an attempt to get away from that format and, and to give more story and integrate the sex so that it became part of the story and not the story as part of the sex scene. It's a sexy movie in parts, but then there are other parts, and I would say kind of on the whole, especially when you leave the film, it's kind of depressing. That's curious. I, 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 I of course, would not have, you know, the insight that you would uh, looking at it, but um, I could see how it would be with the um, subjugation of the women at different different points. Um, you know, uh, especially um, Kelly Nichols and her uh, situation with uh, Jamie Gillis, and the, that part of the story was pretty um, pretty rough. You know, but I think Chuck was shooting to get a realistic aspect of what three women, three uh, basically very different women. Uh, what it would be like if if they were in an apartment situation where they're sharing the apartment and it's, it's, it's the attempt to just kind of be like the fly on the wall there and see them go through all their trials and tribulations. What was it like working with Samantha Fox? Well, Samantha was great. Um, Samantha was um, a very up person. She was the one person that could really make Chuck laugh. I mean, Chuck loved her because she was so she had that that kind of uh, sweet, innocent look, but she was very bawdy in, in a way. She was uh, another one. You know, she was a, a good performer. Chuck had used her in uh, Bad Penny, which um, was one of the few films I didn't shoot for him. Uh, but then uh, the first uh, film that I shot for him and Samantha Fox and Jack Wrangler were both in it as the leads, and it was called Jack and Jill. And that film put Chuck on the map as a you know as a quality filmmaker because he um, he he managed to get the, the between the two of them the energy level in that film was just terrific, you know, and they sustained it all the way through. 
Now, I know we've talked about working with Veronica Hart quite a few times on here, but I can't remember if I've asked you what it was like to work with Jamie Gillis. Jamie was a consummate professional. He did uh, enjoy uh, a lot of the characters that he played in films, so he, he, he enjoyed that in his real life. Um, it's interesting about Jamie, our deceased Jamie now, um, that uh, I, I know, oh, I don't know, five or six women that had relationships with Jamie, and he, he had a lot of relationships with women, but they all speak very highly of him. They all have this great regard for Jamie Gillis, and um, has something to do with his prowess, but also the fact that he was very attentive to the women, and and um, uh, you know could read women and please them in terms of not only the sexual, but in, in terms of their personality and making them feel good uh, and, and and so forth. But he on the on the set he was he was a consummate performer. He um, knew his lines. He, he could he could uh, act a part. And in Roommates, of course, he plays the really deranged uh, uh, psycho uh, sexual predator that uh, goes after Kelly Nichols. And um, that's unfortunately he, he got kind of typecast in those roles as being the perverted uh, sexual guy, but he could also do comedy and uh, a lot of other other things. But always on the set, he was great. He was terrific, um, which I found most of the professional, especially Veronica Hart. I mean, Veronica was the quintessential. Veronica made us all look good because she was so, she could do 10 pages of dialogue, do like six costume changes and, uh, you know, three sex scenes in a day and never miss a beat. You know, she was always up and knew her lines, knew, <clears throat> knew what the film was about, and played the parts. You know, I worked a lot with her. And she, I, I'm actually the one that brought her to Chuck um, because I had met her before Chuck knew her. But uh, she was she was terrific. And she and Jamie and uh, Kelly Nichols and Samantha Fox, those were dependable people. They were people you could count on. And and Jamie, of course, had no sexual problems as far as like you know the what we called in the uh, the business the taffy pull. He never had any trouble that way. He he was always ready to go, eager to go. And I'd worked with him since uh, the early seventies doing loops. You know, back when the loops for the peep shows, the eight millimeter peep shows. So uh, he 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 knew his stuff. He knew how to. To perform. What was it that made that one so special for people? Because it broke the mold, and um, it 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 didn't subscribe to that seven minute, uh, seven sex scenes uh, format that before. It was it was it, 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 as I said, it was it was the story, and the sex was part of the story. Uh, it it wasn't the film wasn't sex driven so much, but it was like a um, a major part, of course, but it was the, what, what really drove the film were the three characters. And um, I think because he, Chuck saw in them the three different, you know, Veronica was the uh, sweet girl that wanted to be an actress in New York, and uh, Samantha, you know, was kind of um, 
hardened because of her days as a prostitute and she was trying to get out and go legitimate. And Kelly was just the, um, uh, she was the druggy bad girl, you know, that always was getting in trouble um, because of her inability to discern the company she was keeping. Did the film manage to break that mold afterwards? What was the reception for it? I went to the first screening in, um, at the Quad in New York City, and uh, it was a little embarrassing because there were not quite a few, but there were a few walkouts right within the first 10 minutes of the film. And I think the design of the film was such that um, uh, it, it, it started with the sex scene, and I think that was a mistake. And also, I had uh, I had a, um, a feud with the art department because I asked them not to use any primary colors uh, because that would look like a, a porno film, and uh, the art director chose to paint the walls blue and have a red bedspread. So. Uh, that being the first scene, um, the audience was, uh, you know, it was a hardcore film, uh, a hardcore scene. And I think that the people that were, I think it, it, it would have been better if he had lulled them into the story first and then introduced the sex. But it, it, as it's happened, uh, he had it um, right at the get-go, and I think it offended some people. Uh, so it, to answer your question... Uh, it did enjoy a certain amount of, uh, the, these were all theatrical in those days. Um, it did enjoy a theatrical release, ran for two weeks in the city. It ran at, at the, um, the Pussycat Theater and, and LA did well out there. And, um, as far as theaters go, theater, theatrical releases of an X-ray film, it did, it did well. It did well. Chuck even, uh, <laughs> he kind of threw a curveball at me at that. Shortly after we finished that, I did, um, a film for some other people, um, called Wonder Whips Wall Street. And Chuck agreed to distribute it. He was just getting, um, his distribution going, uh, with, Plat with a company called Platinum Pictures. And what he did was, he showed he had roommates and he was booking it as a double feature uh, with uh, Wanda Whips Wall Street as the second feature, which meant that, um, you know, it didn't. Uh, it, it, and that was short lived because the producers of um, Wanda pulled it from his distribution and gave it to um, uh, Distropix. Uh, right after that, shortly after that, because they saw what was happening. You know, that was not a cool thing that Chuck did, but uh, I thought he, I think he probably thought he could, I don't know, uh, get over on him by doing that. There was a filmmaker in New York that uh, actually, uh, when, a, when a good picture was going into the theaters, uh, he was hired to just do a crappy film to go in as a double feature so that they, uh, they would break up the receipts, you know, 50-50. And, of course, uh, he would get more money that way than, than the 50% that he would just get for one film. One of those business tactics, you know, that was used in those days. Now, you said that Kelly Nichols was kind of the bad girl in the film and maybe a bad girl in real life. Was she that way on set, or had she kind of cleaned up wrecked by that point? 
No, she was going strong. She was, uh, she was, you know, in the film. You see her doing a um, still shoot, and you know, and one of the uh, assistants is offering her cocaine, and and she did, you know, that was she was she was out of the three girls. She was really the most um, druggy, let's say. And she was, um, I'm probably getting myself in trouble here with, with Kelly, but, um, you know, she did, she did have a very wild streak about her. We did a film that, um, uh, we did, well, actually it was two films, uh, where we, we shot, uh, in, in LA, New York, Washington, Amsterdam, Paris, uh, Munich, and, Zurich and and Puerto Aquilae and Rome and Kelly and a, another guy Kelly and a guy um, were uh, the leads in both films and uh, we had a we had a lot of trouble because um, the guy was uh, getting Kelly to do things like you know having giving him a blowjob under the um, Las Vegas or one of the places we shot under the starlight sign. Uh, you know, they got caught doing that. There was a lot of, you know, and, and on, on the plane going to Europe, you know, I turned around at one point and there was a little boy sitting next to him and the guy had his hand up Kelly's dress and, you know, she was, she was truly a wild child. It was not far-fetched that, uh, she got, uh, typecast in that, in that role in, in roommates. How was it working with Jerry Butler on this one? Jerry was relatively new at that point, Mike. So he was he was eager to please, and he did uh, he did a fantastic job. Uh, and it wasn't until uh, you know that that was the early '80s, and there was a lot of nose candy going around in those days. Um, so a lot of people got um, got. Uh, irascible after a point with, um, you know, being on the set, Jerry did that and, uh, later, but at the time, um, he, he was, um, he was eager to please and he did a, he did a terrific job. Um, you know, and I think that he, his looks, his, his temperament and so, so forth, um, suited the character that Veronica played, um, as, as like the, the boy meets girl aspect of, of the, you know, of the film. So I'm curious, Larry, we spoke a few weeks ago and this one won't go out for uh, a little while here, but I'm curious what you're working on these days. I just finished the, my film Prey, which is a short film and, uh, started entering it into, to festivals and I'm getting back to, um, I'm getting back to writing the third book. So, uh, I, I swore to myself I was going to have a trilogy and I've already got it outlined and laid out a lot of it. And, um, so I, I'm, I'm working on that at this point. Um, now that I've finished those, the two films that I had incomplete, you know, I'm not doing a whole lot of film work right now. I'm thinking about different ideas uh, for, I, I like, as I mentioned to you before, I like the, the short film format. So. Um, I can do those myself. I don't have to be uh, relegated to, you know, it got a little old, the uh, the the, the uh, restraints and, and so forth of working under producers and for other people. Uh, although I enjoyed it, I enjoyed it, but it was not without its um, cost, you know, in terms of uh, emotional. 
And with Chuck, Chuck, uh, you know, we we would do we would do eight features in a year. Chuck was so prolific, and I was shooting with other people too. So from about uh, uh, about seventy, from about nineteen seventy eight till nineteen ninety, when everything changed. Um, you know, I was like one busy guy, film after film after film, and uh, and then uh, then because of cable, uh, cable which uh, really was introduced, but it started becoming popular around '85. And of course, Roommates was '82. It would have been a perfect uh, film to, and it probably did play on cable because there was a soft version that, that could be that could be done. That was before. Um, the hard uh, core stuff was being shown on cable because there was a lot of legal um, uh, people being, as a matter of fact, Samantha Fox was, um, I don't know, they were after her from down in Alabama or someplace that uh, a film that she was in had shown, you know, so there was still uh, this nebulous um, legal uh, landscape and cable was 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 using uh, softcore film. They could show the, you know, DNA, uh, but not uh, open heart surgery. Can I mention one thing that I was proud of uh, about that film? You know, I had done, like I said, I'd done a lot of films up to that point because I started shooting X around 1970, well, 71 or something. It always bothered me that, you know, it was so restrictive in terms of like, and, and that came really from the, the guys, you know, um, the the friends of of uh, Italian opera who would say, hey, don't cut out the undressing, you know, and don't no kissing. <laughs> you know, they had they had their rules, um, and uh, it, and it also uh, occurred to me that there was not. Um, it was always you're always the third person. So in roommates, and Chuck Chuck was uh, very happy to. Um, to go along with me that I wanted to put it into the first person. And uh, so the scene with uh, Jack Wrangler and Samantha Fox, uh, which is a very playful scene. You know, Jack says, uh, you know, let's race to get undressed. And uh, the one that loses gets their belly button kissed from the inside. Um, uh, uh, so, so, in, in in order to to facilitate the first person, I put uh, I put the camera instead of being objective, I put it uh, subjective. And what Jack saw, what Samantha f- saw, the first in the first person. You know, if uh, Jack was uh, if we were looking down uh, Samantha's body, uh, we would see Jack's face as if it, it, what she was seeing, uh, basically. And so that was that was uh, uh, I, I was happy to be able to to pull that off. It did require some some uh, contortions <laughs> to get into position with a big camera, um, you know, next to uh, next to the person's head to show what they were seeing. But I thought it worked pretty good. I thought it worked pretty good. It was it, it was some you know it was something different. It was something a little bit different. That was my uh, my contribution to that. Larry, thank you so much for your time. It is always a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, well, thank you, Mike. I appreciate that, that, that it is being, um, you, know, you know, I mean, this it was so long ago we did that. For any of those films to be still being appreciated is, is quite something. Um, we did a film after that with the same premise about a year later. It was called In Love. 
I was so fed up with the art department at that point. I was art director and director of photography, and boy, did I bite off a big chunk for that. But that was another attempt at the same, same. It was the same modus operandi that uh, roommates was. And uh, you know that was uh, it, it. It didn't. It didn't do um, the um, box office that uh, roommates did. But I think that's because roommates was really kind of a breakthrough. You know that the whole impetus there was to make the crossover film. Then it kind of you know fizzled, and people said, you know, why bother? You know, go back. And then video came in, and forget it. It was all. It all disappeared, you know. It was just uh, wall-to-wall sex after that. Back to the loops, basically. actually have uh, talked a little bit in the past. You did a nice written interview for me. You talked about when you were younger and you were writing for, what was it, Box Office and another magazine. Yeah, a film journal it was. Yeah, how'd you get into that? It was all part of the same scene. New York in the 70s, it was the mid to late 70s, and um, I was living on West 46th Street. I was actually in the computer business as a night computer operator, and I wanted to be a writer. This was the ideal job. I was working... uh, uh, three days a week, 12-hour shifts from 5 p.m. to 5 a.m., and my job involved turning on a big mainframe computer and then babysitting it and then, uh, you know, maybe switching a couple disk drives. They were big things back then, uh, not like they are today. I don't even know if there are disk drives anymore, but that was my job, so I had a lot of time to read and develop my literary career, so to speak, and uh, it was all sort of part and parcel. Um, Film Journal, for example, was... Uh, run by a guy named Jimmy Sunshine, who was friends with Chuck Vincent at the time. And part of the scene over on, I lived in Hell's Kitchen, and, and there were a lot of people in the film business at various levels. It's a lot of crossover at that time between, um, you know, adult films, what they called exploitation films, B-movies, whatever you want to call them. Box office approached me, did I want to write reviews there, a trade paper? And I said, sure. It was, for me at the time, it was an opportunity to see a lot of movies that I wouldn't have seen otherwise going to the... Lincoln Center Film Festival and uh, art films in general, meeting people uh, throughout the industry in New York. So it was really exciting for me. And I did that for a couple of years uh, while I was uh, writing screenplays as well. You know, I remember the first time I saw Jackie Chan in a movie. I mean, and he immediately had charisma and was really exciting. And, you know, um, I met Ed Pressman, who produced Conan and later on went to do a long career. And then I was uh, had the opportunity to interview many people in the film business at that time, and it was exciting. It was great. So tell me, how did you get into the screenwriting business? As mentioned, I was um, you know, sort of living in Hell's Kitchen in, in 46th Street, which is known as Restaurant Row, between 9th and 10th Street, or uh, 8th and 9th Avenues in, in Manhattan was Restaurant Row. And at that time, uh, Chuck Vincent, the Amaro Brothers, uh, Bobby Sumner, if there's any names here you don't know, just you know, pop in. But a lot of people in the in the film production business were, you know, just hanging out there. They'd go there every night. It was, you know, their cheers. And so, uh, you know, one day I was sitting at the bar and Chuck said to me, you know, uh, you're a writer. And I said, yeah, I am. And he said, uh, have you re- ever written a screenplay? And I go, no. And he said, well, you want to try, try it now? And I said, sure. We started with Snap, which was later retitled about five times to COD. And I think it's got another name. 
starring Chris Lemon and a couple of Penthouse Pets, I believe, were in that, including the pet of the year. I forget her name, Carol something. Carol Davis, I think. Yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. I came in on that project, which was actually to prove sort of a template for the projects in my experience in the film business, just produced by a German, distributed by Vestron. Uh, Ron Jeremy was in it in a non-sex role. It was a lot of fun. I don't know if I've ever seen the movie, but it was a lot of fun being in, you know, in the business. I think they shot at NYU Law School, of all places, was one of the locations. So that was the first movie, and that was subsequently released through Lone Star Entertainment, I believe it was. And I don't know if anyone ever saw it, but it's out there. And that was my first film. And then Chuck asked me to do a couple other films after that, which I did. And I started to hang out with a group of filmmakers there, including Chris Gavino, who uh, wrote, I think his screen name was John Christopher, the director. I don't, I don't want to mix him up with David Christopher, but Chris Gavino was a good friend, and, and, and he made many films that I did. Uh, Babe, I guess, is the most famous one of, of the films I made with Chris. Like I said, it was all networking, and um, and I met a lot of people, and uh, we had success with the films that we made. And uh, And at the time, I don't know if there were any other screenwriters really out there for adult films. I sort of just made it up as I went along, you know, with, you know, how, to, how descriptive to be. The interesting thing was Chuck always, Chuck Vincent always had a vision of uh, merging the two. So that was sort of my vision as well, but I'm jumping the gun. Well, I'm curious when it comes to screenwriting for adult films. I mean, are you doing that in typical screenwriting fashion? Did you have to like go out and pick up the, uh, you know, the manual and say, okay, now it's got to be indented this far and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I spent a ridiculous amount of time um, formatting scripts. And in those days it was like uh, we were using typewriters. You remember a typewriter, that that old device, it was sort of like uh, ridiculous and, and, and nobody was really quite sure about you know how a screenplay should be formatted. I think they've gotten it down more with all the programs that are out there. There was a big book called um, Screenplay Formats, Vimes 1 and 2. One was TV and one was uh, screenplay. And when I was living in L.A. or visiting L.A., I picked, it, picked up those two volumes, and I used that sort of as a guideline for, for that. Chuck had his own... Um, you know, method for writing screenplays. I would, but he, 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 he didn't, um, you know, he didn't actually sit at the typewriter. He would do, um, the index card technique, which is sort of a tried and true, uh, uh, screenwriting technique. And it makes it really quite simple. It's having the scenes and the, we would write out all the scenes and, and just shuffle them around like a deck of cards, you know, hopefully to get the maximum creative impact. When you were writing scripts, how much collaboration did you have with him? Uh, we spent a lot of time together. Um, First of all, he was looking for, you know, somebody to hang out with as well as uh, write scripts. Chuck, he loved to party and he loved the Hamptons is where we wrote. He had a house in the Hamptons and he would have, you know, parties there and uh, bring people out. And uh, so I would spend a lot of time out at the house with him. Sometimes usually we'd work from, say, 8 a.m. to 2 or 3 p.m. and then, you know, go to the beach and then get dinner and hang out. So we spent a lot of time together and he had a whole entourage. I mean. In his way, he was like the Andy Warhol factory. He had just a bunch of regulars, and a lot of them are still around. Probably a lot of them are not. Um, I haven't kept in touch with everybody. Um, I know Per Schuss, that his uh, production manager, is living out west, and uh, Larry Ravine, of course, is, is still uh, shooting films, and uh, Colette Connor, of course, is uh, still writing and uh, living in Florida. But poor you know, maybe two dozen of us that were alumni of the Chuck Vincent School. 
And that changed, of course, over the years. I mean, Chuck and I went different ways around 1982 or three. We still worked together. We did Warrior Queen together, and we did uh, a couple other films for uh, Harry Towers. I'm not sure if he directed. I don't think uh, Chuck directed those, though. I think maybe Warrior Queen was our last film that we worked together. But uh, our, our really close working relationship sort of came to an end around 83. I think I had written the original script for Young Nurses in Love and Slammer Girls. I had written those scripts. And then uh, somebody else, I think, came in and finished them up. So that that was our time together. Why the departure? Chuck was uh, a great guy to work with, but he, he was sl- a slow pair. He was such a slow pair sometimes that you know, it made it impossible to to do business. And he was he got in, he got in some financial trouble too. He owed a lot of money when he, he made a multi picture deal with Playboy. And my feeling is that Chuck probably spent the money before he made the pictures. So as a result, he still had to make the pictures, but sometimes the talent got on the hook for some of the costs. So it, it I would say that was a big reason. And and you know when you're not getting paid, you you don't really work, want to work with somebody even though you like the guy and, and the product is good. And he was, certainly wasn't alone. I mean, in that day, you know, the trauma guys would make it difficult for people to collect money, so to speak. And that kind of went with the business, you know, and, uh, you know, it wasn't, you know, you didn't have the writer's guild uh, fighting for you at that level. And he was such a charming guy that if he owed you money, he'd like be so sweet that you would like be apologizing to him by the end of the time that, uh, you know, if you called him up to ask for money, you'd be apologizing to him for asking by the end of the conversation. You know, he was very winning that way. And he would always make you feel that there was something on the horizon, but there was a certain point, you know, I needed to move on for, and just have a more steady type of uh, gig, of which I didn't find in the film business for many years. But uh, when I left the film business, actually, probably until I got into the newspaper business many years later. But you still seem to be working pretty regularly, like looking at your CV and seeing like nine movies that came out in 1984. You know, you were writing a screenplay every like six weeks or so. And the X-rated or the B movies or both? I mean, I'm not sure where these fall into. So like Brooke does college, hostage girls, hypersexuals. Yeah, those were Chris Cavino films. And, and those, you know, I think he might've shot like those three films in one weekend or in, you know, in three days. Those were like 25 page scripts probably. You know, they were remarkably complex for the speed and the low budget. And I don't know, if are the films still available or are they still on the market? I have no idea. I think a lot of them are, yeah. And if anything, a lot of them are coming back out, yeah. That's really shocking to me. I mean, I probably made 250 or $500 for a screenplay. And, you know, we would have never anticipated that more than 30 years later, people would still be watching these. That would probably have been like the furthest thing from my mind. Doom Asylum is another great example of a film that I never really thought would survive yet. You know, my son's 31 and he loves it. All his friends get together and they watch it, you know, and, and they, they love it. And uh, I know that other generations do too. So, you know, I'm very happy for that. Very happy for that. So the story around roommates that I hear is that a lot of it is based on the actual personalities of the people that were in the film. And I'm curious how much of that holds water for you. Chuck knew them a lot better than I did. I didn't really know the three women before. I actually um, structured it based on a movie called uh, The Best of Everything, about three women in in Manhattan who, uh, in the 50s, one was Susie Parker and a couple others, and they uh, tragic comic experiences, more tragic than comic. I mean, I think one jumps out a window when she's pregnant and her her boyfriend and and the man that does it is, uh, you know, not going to... uh, uh, 
marry her. You know, it's old-fashioned, obviously, but uh, I saw this as sort of an updated best of everything. And um, it was by uh, a writer named Rona uh, Jaffe, was it? She was a pretty uh, popular writer of the 50s and 60s. You know, um, that movie's really good, though. I mean, I still like to watch it. It, it, it. It's corny. I mean, you know, it's sentimental and corny, but so is roommates. That was sort of my thought. Chuck knew the three women really well, so that's what he insinuated into it, is he really, you know, developed the characters of uh, Samantha, Veronica, and Kelly. He he was totally aware of Jamie Gillis's potential as an evil character, is a great, great actor, capable of playing a really terrifying character of which he is in that movie. Chuck definitely brought Jamie into the picture and, and created that character of Joel. I think the character's name is Joel. I would say that I was um, probably more instrumental in the structure and the development of the, of the story, and he might have been more character-oriented in terms of bringing the three women together. It's a weird mix of softcore and drama. You know, There, there are moments yeah. where it's just like, was this intended to be a sex film, or is this not... Uh, intended to be a sex film it felt like it was very it needed to be a sex film though yeah um i think it shouldn't have been a sex film i think that uh you know it probably would have had wider uh short-term appeal as a non-sex film but i don't think it would have been as groundbreaking if it hadn't been a sex film i think ultimately that was the right choice for this chuck was really concerned at that point he had made a a number of silly comedies and that's people knew him as making silly comedies like jack and jill and um some of the films that he uh made before i got on board uh that were just really funny comedies and just slapstick up up the wazoo we went to the movie porkies together at the time i don't know if you remember that film but he loved it he laughed his ass off he just thought that was the greatest thing that was where his comedy was coming from in a lot of places. He loved Blake Edwards. But at the same time, he was there. he's an artist. You know, he was an artist. And it was important for him to win respect. And, you know, everybody in the X-rated business at the time, and probably, I'm not sure if it's the same today. I think they get into it for different reasons. But at that time, um, you know, most of us were aspiring filmmakers and wanted to be recognized and respected and, you know, win awards. That's why you saw the advent of the XRCO awards and the AVN awards and the AFM award, whatever awards, you know, my, my uncle called it the golden Schwanz <laughs> award was, was the way he described it. He was very proud of my golden Schwanz award. I think it was for roommates back to your original question. I mean, it was an incredibly uncomfortable movie when you watch it, when you watched it then. And when you, you watch it today, I mean, I hit, I watched it originally. I saw it numerous times in theaters and people would just walk out like not knowing whether they should be aroused or ashamed. I mean, the behavior of the men is so despicable in so many cases that it's often been called like the first time feminist porn film in a way it is. I mean, the women really, uh, they bounce back. They're resilient, um, which is really cool. At the same time, you know, they are actresses in a porn film and they're actually having sex. I mean, um, so that's kind of mind blowing and it's hard for people because you don't, necessarily want to have those kind of emotions you know you don't want to necessarily feel sympathy for somebody that's if your goal is to like have a have an erection you know you don't necessarily want to be feeling sorry for the person that you um are, are getting aroused about so it it was a, a lot of mixed uh, messages for the audience and they still continue that day people don't know what to make of it i mean that i think is probably the most interesting part about it it's uh you know this violent juxtaposition of really tragic uh, emotional pain that these women suffer with, uh, you know, the reality of, of just, and the men are the bad guys. I mean, 
all the men are sort of, except for maybe Jerry Butler in the movie, uh, are really kind of despicable from the opening scene in which, you know, Ted, he doesn't mistreat Jane, but he dismisses her, so to speak, in favor of his wife. Billy in the movie, um, you know, gets Bobby Astor is, is her, was her significant other at the time. And he plays the sort of temporal and uh, he's he's no good. Of course, Kelly gets involved with Jamie, Joel, and he's no good. And, you know, Jack Wrangler is kind of a softy in that, you know, he he's sort of a good guy in that in the whole thing. But of course, you know, the subtext of that is anybody that's a film buff knows that Jack Wrangler was a gay porn star. So that adds like a really a really twist if you, to to the to the mindfuck. Like the only good guy is 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 Jack Wrangler and Jerry Butler, who who plays a gay character in the movie. Jerry Butler, of course, wasn't gay, but um, so you know Jack. Uh, so so you got all these conflicting sexual uh, messages there that are definitely worthy of anal- analysis. Yeah, Jamie Gillis's character is just so dastardly i just cringe every time he comes on screen which is a compliment to jamie i mean he was such yeah. a great actor yeah but if you're looking for, for for arousal i would say i would recommend to anyone that they go somewhere else and i would be probably somewhat suspicious of anybody that got you know too excited watching roommates you know i, I think there's definitely moments of, of eroticism throughout but overall the movie is you know the message I don't think anybody walks out of there feeling like, you know, they just saw a sex film. I think uh, I think they come out of there feeling that they watched some kind of uh, drama. So did you know when you were putting this project together that it was going to be that harrowing of an experience? No, ha- no idea. No. And I don't think Chuck did either. But, you know, he was really dedicated. And, and I can't stress this enough, what I just said, that uh, you know, he was really motivated to prove himself and to prove that he was a serious artist and serious director. That was the most important thing to him in life. You know, a lot of people know him as a goofball or a, he laughed. He had a classic laugh that was just infectious and really funny. And you could just roll in hysterics when you were with him just because he was he could be really silly. But when it came to roommates, he want, and the same with in love, he wanted to do the same thing. He really wanted to assert himself as a as a emotional heavyweight. But I didn't realize that he would be able to accomplish it so so well that the film would still, you know, be able to deliver a punch so many years later. When you talked about winning a, a golden schlong for this, um how was that? You know, there were a lot of awards back in New York back then. The there was a group called the XRCO, the X Ray Critics Association. And we had a party, I think it was at a place maybe the Riverboat and the Empire State Building. There was a lot of money that was flowing back then. People had big parties and uh, it was great, you know, and uh, to win, I love winning awards. I think winning awards beats, you know, not winning awards. And um, especially if you're going to dedicate yourself to an effort or a piece of work, you want people to like it. So I was really happy to win an award for that. And I think it was the first screenwriting award that they had ever given, you know, for adult. So, you know, that's good. You know, it puts me on the map somewhere. So did you say that you were still working at Film Journal and Box Office while you're doing the screen? I worked for them until uh, about 1986, maybe, 84, 85. And I continued. I wrote for a magazine called Movie Maker. I think that's still around. You know, I wrote for many, many other magazines and and the adult uh, magazines. There were a lot of them at the time. There were probably about 20 magazines, Sherry, uh, X Videos and Stag and Swank and Porn Stars Magazine and Partner and... uh, uh, a few others, High Society, I wrote for them. There were a lot of magazines back then, and I wrote for, for a lot of them. There was a whole scene back then. You know, all the critics would get together. We'd go to these screenings at uh, on Broadway in the big screening room, and 
the producers would be there and all the critics would be there. And we just kind of party. We'd smoke joints during the show and laugh and scream and talk to the, talk to the screen. And then they'd have food afterwards and we'd get meals. And it was a writer's dream, especially, you know, when you're, you know, fairly young and you just, you know, it's actually how I met my wife. She was an editor at GCR Publications and I, uh, we were sitting next to each other at screens and we just, um, you know, hit it off. So, uh, but that atmosphere definitely, um, I would say, uh, stimulated our, our romance. So, yeah, that was a good time. Eve worked on Doom Asylum with you, correct? No, she didn't. She came out to the set. She didn't get any credits or anything, I don't think. She might, I think she was pregnant. I think that was the, the thing. We came out, it was at 87 in August of 87 or July of 87. She was about eight months um, pregnant at the time. That was as close as she got to Doom Asylum. Yeah, she was on the set there, but not but not affiliated with the, with the uh, production. Well, did you guys ever work on projects together? Even I, yeah, we worked on a lot of projects. Uh, not a lot, but we've worked on a couple, mostly mainstream stuff. Uh, you know, we wrote uh, 4201 Atlantic Avenue, which is an unproduced screenplay of hers that is really terrific and um, about her, her childhood in Atlantic City. And um, we have... Uh, uh, we wrote stories. Uh, we wrote, we actually wrote under the names Mary Arno and Earl Arno for Screw Magazine for a little bit. You know, we were this fictitious couple, the Arnos. I, I think I wrote a few scripts under the name Earl Arno over the years. One of my many pseudonyms, Lou Myers and Caesar Fontana and Marie Lamonts. You know, I'm everywhere. Even I, we collaborate, but you know, we each have our own separate careers and um, have pretty much always been defined that way. Even though we occasionally collaborate, I would say that we um, definitely are independent. What was your experience like working on Warrior Queen? That was a kind of a wacky experience. You know, Harry Towers had just one of the most fascinating careers of anybody in show business ever. You know, he was a, a radio guy in England, and then he uh, left England. Well, he made the Fu Manchu movies in the 60s. He knew everybody in the business. He was uh, described as a pimp for uh, John F. Kennedy at one point. That story has yet to be fully told. He was ejected from the United States, and forbidden re-entry so he relocated to toronto and he made his movies around the world he was an expert at finding funds from uh countries like namibia and uh, uh zimbabwe no he didn't make it in zimbabwe but in namibia that was one of his favorite places to shoot st kitts he shot and you know he would find tax deals around the world and uh, he was he was a master and he another real unparalleled character that i feel fortunate to have uh experience let's put it that way but in any case he he and chuck were casual acquaintances from uh, the film markets the american film market at the time was uh the place where all the b-movie people went once a year in la to uh exchange their wares and to sell distribution rights and work on productions and so harry and chuck got together and uh vestron came in oddly enough the, the producer for vestron was larry kasanoff who i think later on went on to do titanic or something like that or some big movie, a lot of movies I think he's done. But uh, at the time he was in, at Vestron, which was a little company in Stanford, Connecticut. It was uh, Harry, Harry Towers always liked to work with, uh, you know, pop classics like uh, he, King Solomon's Mind, Minds as an example, or, uh, you know, the, the novels of Ryder Haggard, H. Ryder Haggard, you know who he is? Rupert Gilchrist was another of his famous authors, favorite authors. He was the author of Dragon Ard, which was the movie with Oliver Reed and uh, that I wrote, Nertha Kit, Dragon Ard Part 1 and Part 2. Master of Dragon Ard Hill, I think it's the second one. And um, so Harry was always, you know, pitching these like kind of glitzy period pieces because I think he thought that you could show show more skin 
in the outfits without being considered pornographic because he didn't make porno films at all. He never made a porno film, but he was definitely into showing, you know, some skin. So I think he felt that the costume drama, so to speak, would allow him to uh, legitimize the the showing of skin. I mean, there was always a scene in a Harry Allen Towers film where uh, one of the characters would go, let the games begin. Then people would start dancing around and midgets would start cavorting and, uh, and it was all dubbed. You know, it's great stuff. It's just, maybe it's where my heart really lies. It's just, you know, sort of these overdubbed Italian schlock films of the, of, of that era. I, I still get a kick out of like just watching that stuff. Urbano Barberini, one of my favorite actors. That's the story of Warrior Queen, so to speak. Uh, I didn't go to the production or anything like that. You know, as with all the films, I just wrote the scripts and then I was sort of out of the picture. Larry Ravine, I think, shot that in Rome or somewhere in Italy. You should ask him more about that. But that was, Sybil Danning was in that and she was she was great. I think Harry was really excited to be working with Sybil Danning. It was an interesting script just because I like history and uh, I spent a lot of time reading about Pompeii and all that and uh, trying to be authentic. I think it actually is authentic in its way, considering that it can be rather silly at times, too. A lot of slave trading in there, too. I mean, these films are parodies in some ways. I mean, you know, Roommates is not a parody. That was what was different about it. Roommates was not. But Warrior Queen and Gore and some of those are just, you know, it's okay to laugh. That must have been something writing for Donald Pleasance or Oliver Reed or Arthur Kidd and Jack Palance. I mean, these kind of, you know, luminaries these days. You know, it's just, it must have been a strange change of pace. It's wild. It was, uh, you know, I never really had any contact with them. Once I ran it, I don't know if you remember, it's even listed. I did a movie later on called, originally called Mirror Image, then retitled Double Obsession, then retitled something else. Margot Hemingway, you know, I think she was sort of a, sort of big star, but not as big as her sister, Marielle. I remember seeing her at the gym in, in LA and I went up to her and I said, oh, hi, you know, hi, Margot, you're in, you're in this film I wrote, Double, whatever it's called, Mirror Image. Uh, yeah, I don't know what they're finally, they've, they've released it. It's, it, they really release it every few years under a different title, like it's a different movie. But, but um, I remember that Margot Hemingway, like, and Eve was there. Margot Hemingway went into like the ladies' room and she didn't come out. Like Eve's like, you know, what happened to her? You know, she's been in there. We we did our entire workout at Gold's Gym, and then Margot Hemingway was like still hidden away, and 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 she either found a back exit to get out, or she didn't want to talk. But and then of course she committed suicide shortly thereafter, which was another part of my odd, strange screenwriting career of some characters that occasionally end up, uh, you know, passing away for various reasons. (laughs) So I had a a script with Sam Kinison that we were just about to sign a deal. And then like the next day, Sam Kinison dies in the, in the, in a car crash that that's neither here nor there. Those are just, uh, tales from the crypt there. But, uh, I got a lot of this. I've got a lot, you know, I think, and you've talked to Larry Ravine and you probably talked to other people in the business. I mean, it really kind of defies logic. I mean, it was just, it was just a wacky time. Yeah. His books are just, you sit there and you go, this isn't fiction. This really is fiction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And those are just the stories he wrote down. Right. Yeah. So about the mid nineties, you quit working or at least you're not credited anymore um, as writing films. And I'm curious, did you move, what did you move on to? I wrote books. I, um, in 19, there's a, I don't know. Are you a New Yorker or are you, uh, I'm over in Detroit. So you did, you didn't know a guy named Joe Franklin, a TV host in New York. Joe Franklin was so popular that the jokes about him on Saturday Night Live intrigued me enough to find out who he was. 
Okay, well, then you know. I co-wrote his autobiography in 1994, and that was a, a great experience, totally different. But Joe, of course, was like similar to Chuck in a lot of ways, you know, very positive, funny. I loved, loved the public and uh, delightful personality and uh, made you feel like you were the um, most important per- person in his universe at the time. So that was a lot of fun. So I, I did that. Then I turned to more serious endeavors. I wrote in 1995, I got a call to uh, go to Oklahoma City to write about uh, the uh, bombing of the uh, Murrah Center. And I wrote a book about uh, terrorism in the United States that was, uh, you know, pretty successful and the first book on uh, Oklahoma City and uh, still pretty relevant. It's out of print, but uh, it was called America Under Attack. It was, pre- uh, it was actually, um, you know, printed by uh, a guy named George Mavidi, who ran a company down in uh, the village. It's a quick book, what they called a quick book at the time. They sold them in airports and other places, but I'm still proud of the book. I think it turned out really well and the information is good. So that led to um, uh, more book writing. And then I got an offer to, I decided I needed a real job. So I became a uh, reporter at the local paper in New York. And then I, yeah. And then I went and became an editor in a couple of years. And then I've been doing that ever since. Yeah. But I, I, I don't really do uh, other writing. I, in my spare time, I play music. I, I'm a saxophonist. So that's really my um, other passion. And I've written about music my whole life too, because, uh, you know, that's just one of my passions and it's been a side, you know, j- writing about jazz has been something I've freelanced for, for many years too. So how does it feel for you when you have been out of the business for gosh, 20 years now and you get the call out of the blue from me or somebody who's looking for information about Doom Asylum or some of these other projects that you worked on? It must feel like maybe this happened to another guy. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I mean, I, I think I'm honored. I, I mean, I think it's great. Um, it, it sort of validates sort of the feeling of like, you know, that you, uh, your work was not really appreciated at the time or not appreciated enough, or you didn't make enough money or whatever. And, uh, I think more though, I'm more, I am interested and I'm really glad that everybody, all the film scholars out there and all the, all the film goers, watchers are able to, uh, you know, put these films in context and are interested in, uh, defining the era. And, and, and knowing more and knowing the personalities of the people that were at the time, we do tend to think that whatever's happening now is the only thing that ever happened. I think our sense of history is overall is, is tends to be not as in depth as it could be. So I'm really happy that some of the messages and the, and the images and the, and the spirit of the times is able to survive. And it is weird to realize that, you know, I don't feel old and I don't think I'm old, but you know, a lot of the people that I work with are, are dead. I'm glad to be able to provide um, some kind of information that people might not have who are who are interested in this because I can tell you a lot of this stuff is is just gone. You'll never see it. I mean, I don't have any of my scripts, for example. I do have a roommate script, but a lot of my scripts I don't have. And uh, you know, there's very few pictures out there, very few photographs of the people involved. You know, because of AIDS, so many gay people died, and and with them, you know, they most of them did not have uh, families. And if they did have families, their families rejected them at the time. So those people are like all gone. I mean, Chris Cavino, who I mentioned before, was just one of the great guys that I ever met. And he died at like 23, 24, 25. And uh, nobody's going to remember him really, other than me and Veronica Hart and, you know, Kelly Nichols and a few other people that are going to course Larry, you know, and uh, a few others. But uh, it makes me think about how small that world really was. And I'm glad that we could have some kind of impact. 
men. Bless their clean-cut faces and dirty little minds. <laughs> This is a story of the female jungle, of the girls who didn't marry at 20, and of the men who wanted them, but not as wives. I'm the girl who wants to get married again, remember? The girl for whom an affair with a married man just isn't enough. Here is the best cast of the year to give you the best of everything. small corner of your life. I've never asked for more, and I will not settle for less. Now you and your rabbit-faced wife can both go to hell. This is their inside story, told with all the fact-facing honesty of today's generation. Eddie, tell me something. What is it with women like us that, well, that you hold us so cheaply? Weren't we even decent? What are you talking about? I won't be your mistress. This is a woman who loves deeply, but always with a light touch. When the time comes, she gives it up gracefully. She knows how to have and... To hold and then let go. Exactly. Did, did, did you ever make a girl pregnant before? Not that I know of. You mean some girls became pregnant and didn't even tell you? Some girls don't. All right, we are back, and we were talking about roommates. So I found it fascinating talking with Rick Marks when he said that this was loosely based on or inspired by the film The Best of Everything, because I had never heard of that film. I had never seen that film, so I'm tracking that down and watched it a couple weeks ago, and I can really see how that film informed roommates. My goodness, talk about another just... Man, emotionally draining movie about three women in the business world. I think it came out in 1959. And wow, you want to talk about the Me Too movement and how far we've come and how far we have yet to go. I mean, we were going 1959 to 1981 between the best of everything and roommates. Some improvements had been made, though not a whole lot. And then looking at this stuff today, I mean, I'm so glad that some of the people and the stereotypes that were in the best of everything can't exist anymore uh, or shouldn't exist anymore. And hopefully they don't, but like guys pawing women at their offices and just getting away with it. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I, I saw it and I just like you had not heard of it uh, at all before. And I'm so happy that I, that you gave me the chance to, to, to discover it in some ways. I know this sounds strange. It actually made me appreciate roommates even more because I saw if you like, where it was coming from and saw it as a, as a remake sort of 22, 23 years later, um, set in the same city with three women living together and, and battling with, uh, with their careers against the backdrop of a very sexist uh, structure. 
It was, it was great. It was kind of like a downer sex in the city for me, uh, where you had these women who were different characters, um, but encountering fairly unsurmountable issues on a day to day basis, whether it was emotional issues, whether it was issues in the workplace or just, just, just issues out in the, you know, life in the big city. But it was, it, it was really good. And of course, Joan Crawford is thrown in there as well, breathing fire at everybody, uh, for the first half of the movie. And you can't dislike any movie in which Joan Crawford is, is getting angry. Well, it reminded me of like the devil wears Prada in that way. And this whole idea of her having to be a bitch in order to, have her stake in this company, this male-dominated company, and I really appreciated her for that. But the the pettiness that she shows against one of her employees and the way that she is constantly wearing her down, or is she making her stronger? Because I think she might be grooming her for that position. And once Joan Crawford ends up leaving for a bit, her assistant is the one that takes over. Her assistant is very, very hungry to get into this publishing role become an editor really shines in that role once she gets in there. And then we have Joan Crawford leaving because she's going to be with this guy who was married before. And I think she was his mistress maybe for a little while. And there's this, all of those kind of Peyton place type relationships that we have in roommates were already in this movie, this whole idea of who's married, who's cheating on who, all of this. And then, oh my goodness, the Diane Baker, who I've always enjoyed seeing and stuff, her role as just such a little mousy woman who's in this office. And when she gets involved with um, the Robert Evans character and it looks like everything's going to be fantastic and they're driving out of the city, they're going to go get married. And when he drops a bomb on her that they're actually going to an abortion clinic. Oh, wow. It just becomes this big mess really quickly. And, that does not end well. It really just took my breath away. Yeah, and, and I was shocked that it was tackling such progressive issues. You know, abortion, casual sex, and so on. This is 1959, and and it treats them in a very matter of fact way. It may look like a golden age Hollywood movie, but it really is. Uh, it's a gut punch. Uh, it, it's a, it's a really powerful powerful film. In the way that the one character becomes obsessed with the Louis Jordan character, who is basically that same character as uh, the Jane Hamilton character later on. She's also an actress, also going up for these roles, all this kind of stuff. And when she finds out where Louis Jordan lives and then starts going through his garbage and keeps his garbage, oh my god, it just gets really crazy. And you can see the writing on the wall. At one point, she's up on his uh, uh, fire escape. And I was just like, oh, yeah, she's going to jump off that fire escape. And no, not at that moment. We're going to take 20 more minutes before she falls off the fire escape. But wow, it yeah, this is not again, it's not a very happy movie. Because there's a <laughs> there's a pretty big body count <laughs> by the end of the day. But wow, we it's fairly subtle as well. I really enjoyed how the Joan Crawford character starts off as this bitch. And then you get to see her backstory and she softens. And, um, it's, it's, it, it's, it's a rather moving portrayal, uh, by the end. And you see her having, having appreciated the efforts of, of the team around her in welcoming her back into the family. Uh, so it's, it's kind of this, this, this bittersweet concoction, which, uh, I think has aged extremely well. 
you know, it doesn't come across as being sappy nowadays. It actually comes across as being a fairly hard-hitting melodrama. I thought it was great. I was fantasizing about doing a projection booth on this. So whilst I was watching it, I was looking up to see who is still alive from the cast. And I can tell you that only two characters, by, by my reckoning, are still alive. There's Bob Evans, obviously. Uh, but Diane Baker is still alive. Uh, she was the only one of the three three women. She's 81 now. We need to start getting in touch with them pretty quickly if you want to do that. Yeah, I was trying to get a hold of Diane Baker for some reason, and I'm trying to remember what movie it was. Obviously, we haven't talked about Silence of the Lambs on this podcast, which she has a brief but very memorable appearance in. I was shocked by how many movies, you know, relevant movies in the last 20 years or 20, 30 years she, she'd been in. I was, I was really surprised by how, how active she stayed. She, you know, she's been in a lot of TV series, Law and Order, ER, and so on. But yeah, she was in Joy Luck Club, I think, The Cable Guy. Yeah, I tried to talk to her earlier this year about uh, Marnie, and then also her in Straight Jacket that same year. I mean, talk about two amazing performances. Did, did you get nowhere in your efforts to contact her? I did not, unfortunately. And if I ever did, I would be talking to her about her role in Columbo as well. Yes. Good point. You couldn't not talk about that. I always have to ask people if they've been in a Columbo or had anything to do with the Columbo episode, then I'm going to be talking to them about it. I watched this one with my wife. She was also going a little nuts yesterday when we were watching Little Girl Lost and the theme song that kept coming up in Little Girl Lost. Now, Little Girl Lost, for people that are listening... Little Girls Lost was a 1983 film, I believe, and I saw it listed on IMDb as being a remake of Roommates. And I don't know if remake is the right word or not, but it's definitely drawing from the same well that we have Roommates and the best of everything as far as three women living together having adventures much like uh <laughs> much much like the real world no living together and their struggles and especially around the world of hollywood now we've transplanted from new york city to california and we have these three actresses that are working and and living together and wow talk about tenuous connections there were a lot of times where i just kept saying how does this character know this character and how did this character get to this place now, Heather, I know you're a huge fan of Little Girls Lost. Can you defend that movie for me? Can you tell me why you like that movie so much? Um, I think you're confusing me with my bizarro twin, uh, who, who loves that film as well as the works of A. Uh, uh, I, I didn't, I mean, it's not the worst. I'll try to be fair. Like, it's not the, it's certainly far from the worst film, especially the worst adult film you're ever going to see. There's some great actors in it. It just felt like, the music's terrible. Like the music is awful. I like, and I'm a big music lover. And so that hindered me. But I think what you like, what you just alluded to, Mike, was also part of the problem is there were like bits and pieces of like, if this was handled better, if this was, if the script had been maybe polished up a few more times, like it could have been really good. I mean, you have great actors. You got, uh, again, you have Veronica Hart, you have Ron Jeremy, you have Eric Edwards, uh, you have uh, Chelsea Manchester, aka Tigger, who I know you were not a fan of her performance. That was so tenured. And then what makes it worse is that everybody keeps telling her what a great actress she is. And it's just like, oh, man, but she can't act in this movie. Offline, as I defended Tigger to you, like she she has done good work. I mean, I'm not going to say she would be on par with like Georgina Spelvin or anybody like that. But no, I mean, there's been films where I thought she was perfectly good in like Nothing to Hide. 
but this film, you know, oof. if John Leslie, if I get bored and John Leslie's in a film, that's a problem. Cause I'm a man, I'm a massive John Leslie fan girl, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think Ashley, you were, I think have a much more diplomatic, probably <laughs> <laughs> even keeled view as opposed to Mike and I's like gut reaction of, of like, why? <laughs> You know, I, I thought it was interesting because it was as if somebody had seen roommates and, and thought, I'm going to remake that, but they didn't get all of the reasons why roommates actually worked, why it was such a good film. And they kind of missed, missed the point of roommates, if you like. They thought this is a good vehicle for sex scenes because there's, you know, three, three, three main female characters and we can actually bring them together in, in all sorts of scenarios that will, that will elicit, uh, you know, an erotic uh, scene. But no, it, 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 it's good to see next to roommates because it fails in every way. I think that the roommate succeeds. It, it, it's not, I don't hate it because there's so many familiar friends <laughs> that, you know, you recognize like John Leslie, who's always watchable. But I, I thought it was interesting how in, in Little Girls Lost, they actually have the women turning on each other. I think that Mike, this was a point you made earlier on about the way that roommates is quite subtle and the women by and large support each other. They turn against each other, sleep with each other's boyfriends, argue with each other and so on, double cross each other. And so there's none of that female camaraderie that, that I think you know, contributes to making roommates such a strong statement. It starts off kind of similarly as far as Veronica Hart is playing this girl, Alicia, and she is, uh, on a set and Ron Jeremy's the photographer and he, he starts buttering her up in this weird way of like, Oh, you want some wine? And it gives her some wine. Oh, that looks so great. The way that you swallow that wine here, drink some more, drink some more, drink some more. <laughs> and then he ends up getting her sloshed and taking advantage of her. So it's pretty much a rape scene right out of the gate. And it's, you know, it was very uncomfortable watching that. And then the sex just doesn't necessarily get better. And one of the things, and this is a weird complaint, but I'm going to say it anyway. One of the things that really gets me is that all the moaning being done in post didn't match up to what was going on on screen. Like there's one part where a woman is giving a guy a blow job and she just keeps going like, mm, mm, mm. and I'm just like, no, that doesn't even match what's going on. Like his cock might be out of your mouth right now and you're still doing the same noise. And that was driving me crazy. You're not even trying. Well, see, I just thought she was a really good ventriloquist. I was like, like, damn, not only, no wonder she got hired for the job. She can throw her voice. <laughs> oh my God. No. I, and I was so sad because that was Bill Margold. I was like, oh, look, it's Bill Margold. And I'm like, oh, but it's in this movie and there's this bad ADR and just, oh. It's uncanny how so many, how it apes roommates. You know, it starts with this big theme song, um, which, which, which roommate starts with. It starts with this coercive, rapey, um, scene right at the beginning of the film. But it, I kind of thought that it played it for titillation, whereas the roommates version, you knew straight away that this was uncomfortable and it was, it was not right. And that for me summarizes the difference between the two movies. Well, I think also too that at one point, Alicia gets an offer to make $500 the hard way, but it's her female agent that's trying to pimp her out rather than it being Marv trying to pimp her out. It, to your point, it felt like we're going to take all those things from roommates and just kind of miss the point. You know, it's going to be men, women, whoever are going to be the ones that are trying to take advantage of these three women. And they just get put through the ringer and 
nobody's really much happier at the end of the film. There's this, the end scene is just absolutely bizarre where it, uh, our main girl, Tigger, Kathy is her character name, ends up getting this big contract because she's such a great actress. And then the guy is giving this big speech about like, I have the power to make or break you. I'm only as powerful as people make me, but people have made me very powerful and has her sign this contract. And then he tells her basically like, you know, go over there and strip for me. And she goes over and strips. And then he's just like, Oh, you know, he doesn't say just kidding, but he's just like, okay, signs the contract and says, put your clothes back on or I'll, I'll call your bluff. I'm just like, Okay, that's kind of strange. It's like one of the few times that there isn't a sex scene in this movie, but it leaves you even more upset because it's just like, wow, what this guy is just boasting about the power that he has, humiliates this girl, sends her on her way, and is this the happy ending? I don't think so. And, and our heroine seemingly willingly goes along with it until she realizes that he's semi-joking. You know, she's like, well, if this is what I got to do, I'll do it. So and that's that's the way we're going to end. Heather, this is a little bit of a personal question, but I have to to ask: Are you wearing garters right now? Uh, always. Now I'm talking. <laughs> you would fit in very well to this movie. Yeah, they they go very nice with like you know loose fitting pants. Uh, uh, <laughs> now, one thing to say: I was trying to like find positive you know, positives in things. One thing, the film, I think halfway, whether or not it was due to any skill or anything, Ashley, I think your assessment's perfect. That it, It's like a hat. It's totally like a best choice always saves roommates. You know, it's like we're getting some of the main ingredients, but it's, eh. but, uh, but some of the scenes, I know there was a scene where she went to go audition and, the guy's real sleazy. I mean, he he looks less like a Hollywood exec and more like a guy who would try to sell reefer to Three Dog Night. I mean, this guy's really sleazy. But that interaction, and she leaves. But, you know, he pulls out his penis, and it's totally like a power thing. It did make me think of, like, the whole, like, thing with Harvey Weinstein and, you know, the whole, I guess, me I guess me too, it does, does kind of color things. You know, we do kind of – but here you didn't have to look for it. It's right there. And so that's like, okay, that's a nice, ugly – probably authentic, sadly authentic touch, but it's kind of wasted in a film that's just half-assed. You know, I, I wish it could have been really good, but... There are so many similarities, and you're just watching this going, they had to have seen roommates. They must have seen roommates, but yeah, it just the point went right over their heads. And what was the deal with the acting class? Like, it looked like it was like, if somebody, like, watched two minutes of The Living theater which i'm a, I'm a big fan of i love julian back and you know i love experimental theater but it looked like the living theater if it was conducted by i don't know like eight-year-olds or something it just it was ridiculous i just i don't know i just wasn't feeling this movie guys if, if you couldn't tell like it's just <laughs> i was i was like especially after watching roommates which was so good it just felt like i'm just disappointed you need films like that to make you appreciate the good ones that's very true. That's why when Mike and I watch Showgirls too, it made us appreciate Showgirls one even more. Good example. Yeah. <laughs> There's actually an interesting adult connection with the best of everything. I noticed the policeman in a scene and in the best of everything and looked it up and it's played by an uncredited actor, a guy called Joe Bardo. Uh, I don't know if his name rings a bell, but he went on to be an X-rated film director. 
in the 70s and 80s, worked with uh, Rene Bond. He was actually the photographer, the cinematographer for Alice in Wonderland, the, the, the porno musical, um, and did, did plenty of films in the late 70s and early 80s. Um, worked with, had worked with Ray Dennis Steckler on Ratfinger Boo Boo and so on. So that's a, that's a guy who's actually in the best of everything. Oh my God. <laughs> Just a little detail. Ashley, you were so good. Like this is, you floor me every time. Like that is, <laughs> you, I mean, we got a Ray Dennis Steckler connection here. That's, ah, oh, life is so amazing. I love, I love this. <laughs> I would hate to play the six degrees of Ron Jeremy against you. I would not even dare. I, I am not a, I try not to be a fool too much. <laughs> All right. We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Here we have a quiet little motel, when in fact it has now become known as the scene of the crime. You have a vacancy? Oh, we have 12 vacancies. You know this is the first place that looks like it's hiding from the world? I think that we're all in our private traps, clamped in them. And none of us can ever get out. Is anyone at home? Oh, that, that, uh, that must be my mother. Is anything wrong? Am I acting as if there's something wrong? She's not missing so much as she's run away. Put me down. Mother, oh God, mother! What are you running away from? She looked like a wrong one to you. It's not as if she were a, a maniac. She just goes a little mad sometimes. Why, she wouldn't even harm a fly. That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of Psycho. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Ashley and Heather. Heather, what is the latest with you, ma'am? Well, uh, speaking of Chuck Vincent, my article on his 1971 film, Blue Summer, along with The Last American Version and The Pom Pom Girls, will be appearing in the debut issue of Jeremy Ritchie's new periodical, Soledad. And Jeremy, if you guys aren't familiar, had a publication called Art Decades prior. And so he's doing a new outfit. It's very exciting. And it should be coming out later this December. And uh, as for the first volume of the Bizarro Encyclopedia of Film, it will be available for review and pre-order January 2019. Hallelujah. And of course, for this and any other update sundries, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and at my website, mondoheather.com. And Ashley, for folks who haven't checked out the Rialto Report, possibly one of the greatest podcasts ever, can you please tell them a little bit more about it? Yeah, sure. You know, we started about five to six years ago wanting to record the oral history. 
from the so-called golden age of, of adult films, roughly the mid-60s to the mid-80s, mainly focusing on New York, but we do feature people from, from both coasts. And its core really is to get people's perspectives on their career and time in the industry, both before they started out in the industry and what they've been doing since. So we're interested in their perspective now in their 60s and 70s uh, about what they've done in their life when it, uh, as, insofar as it relates to, to the adult film industry. It is a way of preserving the history so it's not lost forever. So many people have passed from that era, and these people have played an important part in the sexual revolution of this country, and they get dismissed very easily. Um, so we really wanted to just capture things in their own words via podcasts or, or written interviews and so on. And where can folks find out more about the Rialto Report? Uh, the Rialto Report is at uh, therialtoreport.com. Um, we're on Twitter and Facebook as well. And in addition to the, the, the website, we've also been working as consultants on the first two seasons of the HBO TV series, The Deuce. Um, and we've just actually been hired for the third and final series as well which will be covering a period in the 80s, similar to the uh, period for the two adult films that we've been discussing today. So that's something else to look forward to. We also have a couple of books that are close to completion, uh, the autobiography of Jamie Gillis uh, and the autobiography of John Amiro, both of which have been in in preparation for a number of years, but are edging towards completion, and they should be out uh, soon as well. Man, I can't wait to read that Jamie Gillis book. I mean, both of them sound fantastic, but Jamie Gillis has always had a a very special place in my heart after he uh, told me what he would do to a, uh, a dick that was walking around on its own, that he would spit on it. He's the man for me. Him and that accent in that movie. Oh, oh my God. The, be- the best slide ever. Come on, baby. Look at me. I'm living the dream. I got all this money. Beautiful girls. I even get to be Chinese. I've always wanted to have a cell phone that just went oh. ring, <laughs> ring. We, we will be here for another hour if, I, if we start quoting new wave hookers. It's so good. And Oh, I have to do an episode on that sometime. If I can get a hold of of uh, Greg Dark, I would. You know, I did a I did a podcast interview with him about uh, well, maybe a year or so ago. So if you need any help with that, happy to set it up. That would be fantastic. Yeah, I will definitely take you up on that. Thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.